If you want it, baby, I can show ya. If you want it, I can get to know ya. If you want it, baby, I can show ya. If you want it, baby, I can show ya. Let me explain as I'm taking it off. Let me explain how I feel about us. If you want it, baby, I can show ya. I can show ya. Welcome to another episode of Sperm Donation World. And today I have Wendy Kramer from the Donor Sibling Registry. <laughs> Welcome. It's been a long time. I've been uh, been aware of you for many, many years now, and this is our first time talking. Well, thanks so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here. Wendy has an interesting story in in the you know the fact that she was essentially a pioneer in a market or in an industry that had a lack of direction, and she went out and soared that direction. Would that be fair to say, Wendy? Well, I think there's really a lack of accountability, a lack of responsibility, and a lack of ethics, and a lack of listening to all members of the donor family and uh, and what they need. Well, let's wind back the clock to the very start. I like to lay it out as like a little story, and then we move 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 through a timeline. But I mean, obviously, you needed or required a donor to even be talking today. Absolutely. So let's see, the short version of my story is that I was married and my ex-husband, then my husband, had infertility issues. So we used a sperm donor. And that was uh, late in 1989. And my son Ryan was born in May of 1990. Within a year after he was born, my husband and I split up. So at that point, I was raising my son as an only parent. And when he was two years old, he came home from preschool, and he had seen moms and dads. And he said to me, so did my dad die or what? And I thought, oh, my God, like, we're having this conversation. Okay. And we had a very simple two-year-old conversation about you know, but mommies need an egg and you need a sperm from a daddy and we didn't have one. And, you know, so it was very short, but very important conversation because it was the cornerstone conversation that we could then build upon. And then, I mean, I had a very curious child. By the time he was six, he was looking at me saying, I want to know who my biological father is. And I remember thinking, of course you do oh my God, what have I done? And what do I do? And, you know, so basically at that point, we had to wait for social media to be invented. You know, the sperm bank, the clinic, nobody would help us get the questions that Ryan needed to have answered. A lot of people in the community that I'm around, uh, you know, single mothers by choice or end up being single mothers. You obviously went into this as a, as a partnership with your husband and Uh, A lot of people break up, especially in this day and age. Do you feel that a male dealing with male infertility was a strain on your relationship that ultimately, you know, you ended up breaking up within like a year? Because, I mean, you know, you had the child, you went through the process. And, yeah, like, is that a thing that can affect a lot of people who are going, even if they're posing as going through as couples may deal with? I think so. I think infertility can be extremely stressful and challenging and difficult to come to terms with. You know, we had a hard time with that. I have to say in my personal 
story. I think we had other factors that had been around, you know, that I had been kind of hoping would be fixed. They weren't fixed. And uh, I think for me, part of my thinking was, you know, I might have made some mistakes that affected myself earlier in life. But now that I have a child, I don't want him to be at the effect of these mistakes. And that was sort of the instigating factor of us leaving my ex-husband. I wanted my son to be able to grow up happy and healthy. Yeah, it's an interesting concept or idea. I mean, like a lot of people now, they want to go like, they say, I want a baby or when they get that biological urge that can come out of nowhere, you can be not wanting children at all. And then one minute you're suddenly craving them. Like <laughs> That was me. I mean, if you were to show me when I was in my twenties, if you were to show me a baby and a puppy and say, pick one, I would have chosen the puppy every time. And then when I was like 29, I think it was like, ding, 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 ding. My biological clock went off and and I just remembered there was this, not from my head, but from somewhere else, this urge to be a mother that I had never had before. And that's, I think that's quite common. I mean, I've had, I've spoken to women in their 30s and they're like, oh, I don't never want a child. And then all of a sudden at 39, 40, they're just kicking in late. It's just like, it's these hormones that are, that are within us that can be crazy. Like the effect that they can change, make you do a full 360 on who you are or what you thought you are or the path that you were going down or the path that you foresee yourself as not, not ever having children. So yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing what, um what this, this uh, supping within us can do. Well, and I think importantly, to, to this conversation, a lot of parents go into the process of gamete donation, sperm or egg donation, and they're very desperate. This is the only way they're going to have a child, be it, you know, they're LGBT or single mothers or infertile couples. So the industry kind of gets us when we're coming from a place of desperation and maybe we're not doing all our fact checking or we're not able to make fully informed and educated decisions that are going to affect our children for many decades to come. So I think the industry kind of gets away with a lot of what it gets away with because, I, I mean, I remember it well, it's the just give me a baby phase where you're like, give me the baby and I'll worry about everything else later. Mm. And you think you have years to think about it. And, you know, other people might have a two-year-old just like mine coming home from preschool saying, you know, did my dad die or what? Or have a six-year-old looking at them saying, you know, I want to know who my biological father is. So you think you have all this time when in reality, you probably don't. I see it all the time and it's like no matter how many resources I put out or how many conversations that we have like this now, uh, it's sort of people just got that baby fever of eyes on the prize, just I want the baby and then and then a lot of them are quite smart people and then the, the baby's born and then they're looking at this little baby and they're going, oh, like you said, oh, my God, what have I done? Like, And then they start asking questions of, Oh, do we, do we have meetups? Or my, the donor I picked said doesn't want no contact to eighteen, or you, they're not going to ask any questions. And that, oh, I want to, I suddenly want to know 
other mums and parents now, but I didn't work that out with the donor of, you know, you'd do that. At the time, these things weren't all important, but then they become so important after the actual baby's physically here. Well, that's why education and counselling before pregnancy and really before donating also, for donors and parents, they need to be properly counseled and educated about what they're about to do and how it will affect them and their families and the children that they're about to create. I think going into this without properly educating yourself or or having the proper counseling, you're you're not making fully informed choices and decisions that will affect your life for decades to come. So there are um, there's really no good reason to not go into this with your eyes wide open, knowing what the issues are about donor-conceived people, about what works and what doesn't work. You know, I think at this point in time. Many of those things are laid out already, you know, and there are resources out there for people to educate themselves properly. So obviously having to use a donor and you had a um, a breakup with your then husband after a year, you know, was it sort of one of those things because there's no biological material provided his end that's a clean split that he just, you know, you know, exited a jar both of your lives and you've just well yeah it wasn't that it wasn't that clean because we had been together for seven years so it wasn't that clean and also it wasn't until a few months after we split that actually he left both of our lives forever so he became the not parent the not legal parent he was taken off the birth certificate and he had no rights and no responsibilities so I mean, usually when people get divorced, the dad is still the dad. In my case, um, because he wasn't the biological father, but then we went through a legal process to take him off the birth certificate and he lost all rights and all responsibilities. So then I really did become a full-time only parent to my son, which, you know, like you say, I didn't sign up for that, but that's kind of, it was a secondary choice for me. I mean, do you reckon we'd be sitting here talking today if you went down a different path of this? Like, you know, you stay together, you know, how all these bits fall into place and everything happens for a reason, like. Well, you know, I think you have to put reason to everything that happens, right? Because that's how you make sense of it. You 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 kind of assign reason to everything that happens. And then, I don't know, it allows you to kind of tie it up in a nice, neat bow, right? To see your reason for things happening. I think for us, it was not the ideal situation, obviously, to raise a child without a father because fathers matter. And so when I made that choice that my son would basically grow up, as far as I knew back then, without a father, it was not an easy choice. Mm, Um, But it came down to which is better or worse, like a a father who's not well, maybe, you know, with like alcohol and drugs and things like that, or no father at all. And I chose no father at all instead of having a negative influence. Um, but I cried many tears and I it was a it was a very heavy decision to undertake to decide to raise that child, my child, um, all by myself. 
Yeah, I think it's very important what you're saying here because I think there's a lot of people in that in that situation where they've. Is it best for the child to grow up in a, an environment that they're seeing things or experiencing actions or behaviors that may not be you know great for them role you know role model wise in terms of say if they were alcoholic or or using drugs and stuff like that so you know sometimes you have to make that hard decision and i think there's a lot of people in society that are probably um you know that's the weighing that that weighing up those sort of decisions as well so you know it takes sometimes it takes that you know that bravery to take that um steps initiative for your child and weigh up those decisions uh definitely and this is a little bit different than most people like most people that i know my friends who have gone through a divorce they're single moms but they have an ex-husband who is also a dad right so they time share with the kids they co-parent essentially they're not a 24 7 parent but in my situation it wasn't I didn't have a co-parent. So when we split, I became an only parent to my child, a solo parent with no help whatsoever. So I think that's the difference between people that use like single mothers by choice. Um, you know, they are choosing just like I did a little bit later on in the process to not just be a single parent, but to be a solo parent, to be that child's only parent. And that's very different because there's no, you get no break, you know, it's seven days a week, 365 days a year. Um, it's a lot more responsibility than someone who just gets a divorce and shares custody. So <clears throat> your child asks between, you know, nearly two years old about, you know, about this question of like where he came from and the concept of actually you know having a, a vague idea of what deaf is and and all that um you know it's surprising we underestimate how smart these children are well, i'm guessing you would have became from the age of when the doctors were telling people that uh you know don't tell the child that they're donor conceived and for me it's you know it's very easy to lay blame on doctors and I know they're very trustworthy people. Like you grow up knowing that police officers are trustworthy people and and you know these levels of protections out there and there's all these nice people that you grow up with that in society that are here to help you. But lying is something that I just could not fathom me having to tell my children whether or not you know technology was there or not back then, which wasn't. Uh, in modern day, in modern day age, you know they they can't give you that advice anymore because they know that you will get caught out. But I mean, it was wrong, isn't it? I mean, and you were given this advice like so many others that choose to go along with a lie, but you knew right from wrong and went, "Hang on, this is not really great information that you're telling me here." Well, yeah, I mean, I thought, uh, you know, when you raise a child, you are going to expect honesty from them and you're going to teach them to be honest human beings so how can I expect honesty from my child when I'm not giving that same honesty to him so it goes both ways so I felt like I owed it to my child to be open and honest with him I I couldn't imagine being any other way because you know as he got older I'd be expecting that honesty back from him so it just seemed to me it was very intuitive and back then um you know when i think a lot of us when we 
walked into this donor world, we thought that the doctors, the sperm banks, the egg clinics, you know, all of the gamete selling facilities, we kind of thought, oh, they're part of the medical community, you know, so there's got to be, you know, accurate records and, you know, ethics and HIPAA first do no harm. So we, we kind of thought that this was a part of the medical community. And what many of us have come to realize is that these are just sperm sellers, you know, they're not a part of a medical community. They're held to no set of ethics or standards or accountability or responsibility. Their main goal is to sell sperm. Um, it's a very profitable industry. And the goal here is to make money, sometimes at the cost of having an unethical industry that donor conceived people really pay the price for. It's one of those things where there'd be a lot of parents or RPs, they call them, or <laughs> that would be in a position of still wondering, should they tell their child, but, you know, their child's 32 years old now, or, you know, this, they're in that thing going, all right, well, I've done it this long now, got to try and continue to write out the lie, um, and hopefully it never gets, I have to face it. But I don't know for any of them, it'd be a very awkward situation to live in especially as all ancestry and 23 first started uh very 23 me first came out all these sort of dna tests would come out that'd be going oh no am i going to get caught out here so they've been living with this lie that they every day that they wake up to knowing that could you know their child may buy um you know uh, a black friday sale or um and well, then... but for donors too, right? Many donors haven't been honest about the fact that they donated and they're just, the clock is ticking, waiting for their donor children or the children they're raising themselves or their brother, sister, grandmother, somebody to do a DNA test. So it's all a ticking time bomb. There is no anonymity and there hasn't been since 2005. So this is not new and anyone thinks they can be anonymous and the sperm banks and the egg clinics that have this forced 18 years of anonymity, that's all really deceptive. Also, there you, you can't force anonymity because anonymity doesn't even exist. Anybody can swab their cheek and the donor doesn't have to swab his own cheek. This is what sperm banks still tell donors. Oh, don't worry. If you don't swab your cheek, no one will find you, which is complete BS. So you have this industry that's still trying to pretend that donor anonymity is possible. And then they promise it to donors and they also mandate it for donors and parents. And it's ridiculous at this point in time. I mean, I think personally, if you are a donor and you're, and you're trying to uh, limit that contact or limit to getting out to your family members, it's probably... You know, you'd be make more logical sense to do the DNA test yourself rather than then contact your auntie or your cousin or your brother or your sister and then try and find That's you through them. That's what we tell people. Yeah, if you're a donor, get ahead of it, right? Don't wait for it to chase you down or your aunt Sally or your brother's kid or you know somebody else. You can get ahead of it by um, making yourself available, but that's what the donor sibling registry is. You can make mutual consent contact, and that way you've made yourself available to be contacted by 
donor can see people and their parents or basically anybody. And then you're in the driver's seat. You know, you're not running with this mob chasing behind you. You're actually taking control of the situation and saying, um, okay, I'm going to establish contact here. I can update and share medical information or photos or, you know, whatever. And for a lot of donors and parents, it's more comfortable to do it on the donor sibling registry because number one, it's mutual consent contact. You're not tracking down people that don't want to be found. Um, and number two, you can remain private on the DSR. Nobody sees your your contact information, your name, your email address, none of that. So you can kind of dip your toes in the water, take it slowly. Um, it's not like, you know, matching with people who might not want to be found. It's two very different experiences. Well, it's very true because, I mean, it's not until you actually sign up, to, uh, like I've done my DNA testing and put on these sites and stuff, and it's not until you actually sign up that you get to see who's related that's re-signed up around you. So when I signed up, I was like, oh, this person that I know and this person I know and my, co my second cousin in, in Utah's on it, you know, like, and all these people that uh, <laughs> that I wouldn't have known like say for instance, if I wanted to live a donor life that was very secret or trying to pretend not to get tracked down, like I would be like, okay, all these people on here are dead giveaways of of tracking me down. <laughs> so. Of course, yeah, but it's amazing. Donors, I think there's some of them still live in that bubble of you know believing what this burn banks tell them, and you know I've had donors who give their children DNA kits for Christmas or for their birthday. And then they're shocked when their kids match with X amount of donor offspring, you know, <laughs> and the donor's like, Oh, I didn't think about that. Like, really? Um, are these meant to be university educated medical students? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, people just don't think about it, you know, or they don't, again, they don't properly educate themselves on here's how it works. Here's how DNA works. Here's, you know, the donors don't have to swab their cheek to be found. And, uh, you know, if you're a donor, you're going to be found, if not immediately, eventually. So this, I've noticed when I first started donating that it was basically, we went off the clinic, you know, being an online donor, we went off like the clinic's protocols of oh, yeah, when the child's 18, they can reach out and contact you because everyone just thought, you know, well, that's, you know, the clinic's guidelines are, it must be the right way. And and then what I found out was, you know, some of these children of mine that I've helped conceive as a donor, they are, you know, seven, seven years old now and they started, you know, because some of the original people I first helped was like, okay, yeah, that's fine. When they're 18, they can reach out to me. And then the, a lot of them came to me at the very start at, when they were three or four years old and saying, hey, Adam, we know that we uh, told you that when the child was 18 that they want to reach out to you. And But can we change that now? Because they're already asking all about you. They want to know this, they want to know that. And a lot of them are really trivial questions, like children questions, like favourite cartoon characters, or favourite, favourite Ninja Turtle or, you know. <laughs> But obviously that wasn't something that was thought of or something that they just looked at as the clinic as the benchmark or the baseline of um, the guideline to go through. Uh, you know, there's a lot of curious children out there and there's some that aren't, you know. So how do you pick up on those signs? Obviously when a child is two years old and just beginning to talk and is already asking those questions, 
you know, you sort of probably realize that you're going to have a child that, you know, um, is going to, you know, that little seeds planted in his head at that age, it's going to, you know, he's a very curious kid. Well, parents frame these conversations, right? So if you have a parent that says, those people aren't your family, DNA doesn't make a family, that kid is going to grow up and the parent's going to insist they're not curious. Now that kid might have an internal dialogue that's very troubling because they do feel curious, but they know that that's not welcome in their family, that their parents have told them DNA doesn't make a family. So any curiosities they might have are going to be squelched or come out later. And I know this because I see donor can see people coming on the donor sibling registry and say, I'm doing this behind my parents back. You know, if they found out they would feel betrayed or hurt or angry, you know, so really, you know, at the beginning, it's the parents who frame the conversation and really parents can can and should leave it as an open conversation, allowing their kids to define their own curiosity if they have it and to know that that's normal. It's an innate human desire to want to know who and where we come from. And I think the best thing that parents can do for a child is just create the dialogue and the ongoing discussions for the kid to know if they are curious that that is normal and that's okay. And it's okay to talk about it. Um, you know, and, and just to go back to one thing about the 18, you know, the whole idea of keeping a human being from their genetic relatives, their family medical history, their ancestry for the first 18 years of life doesn't make sense, right? In no other society, anywhere in the world, anywhere in time, has it been accepted practice to keep a human being from their very close genetic relatives for 18 years. So why is this idea so easily sold in reproductive medicine, in sperm and egg donation? I just don't get it. Um, it doesn't make any sense to me. You know, you said you've got kids who are seven, like, of course, any child raised in an open household is going to want to know about their close relatives. You know, 18, it doesn't make sense to keep them from the relatives for 18 years. So what questions did you start to receive during this timeline as he, as he grew up? You know, was there messages of like, we used the donor, there's only 10 families out there. Like, you know, was there questions of like how many, you know, siblings to a half siblings I have out there or was, was there any of this sort of navigated? Cause I find that a lot of people who have got trauma in the donor conceived um, community are the ones who found out they've got large sibling pods, but it's because they were told there was only going to be a handful or they weren't expecting it or they, they, you know, they, or they didn't know they were donor conceived to begin with. And then all of a sudden they're playing catch up of, of finding out all of a sudden they've got this large amount of um, uh, amount of siblings as opposed to, you know, say, for instance, uh, a family that tells them, hey, we don't we use a donor, you know, you may, you may have lots of siblings out there and one day you get to meet them all or you can have a big party or go over and travel and have holidays. And those ones that I've spoken to actually really embraced that concept of looking forward to seeing all these large siblings or having these big once a year get togethers and as opposed to those who were caught out not knowing that this, you know, could be something that's going to be thrown into their life. 
Um, well, sure. I think, you know, kids who are raised in a very open way and honestly and without fear, you look at these possible relationships as expanding family. It's not it's not taking away from your current family. It's just an adding to. So why not? More people to love your kid, more people to have in your expanding family. You should, you and your child get to decide who you want to spend time with. Just because you're related by DNA doesn't mean you're going to like these people or want to spend time with them. Just like our families are more our traditional families, you know, um, some people that we share more things in common with, they're the people we want to hang out with. But for a donor conceived person, like, of course, they should know who they're very closely related to, at the very least, for medical information, but also, they should be able to grow up knowing these people, because why not, you know, we don't keep our children from their cousins until they're 18, why would we keep them from their half brothers and sisters or their biological mother or father, the donor until they're 18 years old? It doesn't make any sense. And you make a very good point because I've spoken to people who, you know, obviously come from traditional families of say like a nuclear family and they got one or two siblings and they say, you know what, I don't get along with any of these people and I got raised in the same roof um, as them going, growing up and we just don't click and we just, you know, now that we're all adults, you know, we might see each other once a year for Christmas, but apart from that, we don't really have much to do with each other. And I think there's some confusion who, because there's a lot of trauma and a lot of stigma related around being donor conceived and then you're finding all these people out and some people feel that they have an obligation that they have to know them really well or be best friends with them all but really there's no no different than say these siblings that you grew up with that you don't like exactly i always tell people you know look around your holiday table your christmas dinner table do you want to hang out with everybody at that table no of course not you want to hang out with the people that you're most like-minded with or the same sense of humor or the same interests or hobbies or you know academic pursuits or whatever so but even if you don't want to hang out with them, they're no less your family. And it's the same thing for donor siblings. You may not get on with all of them. Or if you have 100, groups of over 100 are very common. Um, do you want to hang out with all 100 of them? No, probably not. But you're going to gravitate towards the one where you have the most in common. And I've seen people with sibling pods say 30 and 40, and they say, you know what, um, out of that 30 and 40, I have five to seven that I really get along with that are like best friends. And I'm like, okay, well, if you had um, a sibling pod of 10, then you may only have one best friend out of all that. So, you know, there's pros and cons with all this, you know, um, you know, seven best friends as opposed to one best friend. You know, I mean, people have brothers and sisters they grow up with. Do you know, do they debate how many kids a person should have in a family? No, it's just you get what you get, right? We all, we, none of us choose our family. You didn't choose your parents or your siblings. And for donor conceived people, they didn't choose their parents or their siblings. They just happened to be born into a situation where instead of the norm of maybe two or four siblings, their norm is a, a, a much larger, you know, potentiality. And there are, you know, so 
Yeah, I think donor conceived people struggle more when obviously they're lied to, they find out later in life, they don't have supportive parents, their parents don't honor their curiosities, they don't acknowledge their donor family connections. But even for people who have known their whole life, being donor conceived has a very unique set of challenges where you maybe don't know or can't communicate with a lot of your very close relatives. Maybe you don't grow up with a father figure. And we know through research that that does affect people when they don't have a father figure or a male role model in the house. It matters. And donor can see people have told us that, um, you know, in, in our research studies. So there's also, you know, not having access to your family medical history that can be very difficult. So there are mental, emotional, physical, um, and social issues with just being donor conceived. Um, and I think whether you're told early on or later on, some of those issues are just inherent. Just, just by being donor conceived, you're going to have some challenges. And I think that's parents need to acknowledge that. And, you know, I hear so many parents say, well, I've told my kid and, you know, and therefore I'm done and everything's good. It's like, no, you need to then really um, face and deal with the issues that come with being a donor conceived person, like maybe not having your questions answered, maybe by having a finding out your biological father is not somebody you would ever want to know, or you have half siblings that are people you might not dialogue with in in your regular life. So I think there's a lot of things to deal with with having close genetic relatives, so many of them who are strangers who you didn't grow up with. It's just inherent in in being a donor conceived person. Is it one of those things now that if you were a donor conceived person and you were about you're able to link with all the all the other parents or other children from day one so you know you know, that little Michael likes pop music or, you know, you know that someone plays the drums or they play sport and you just know this growing up. Um, so you're going gradual information of these peers' lives that you aren't playing catch up at any point. Because I think some of these adults are saying it's overwhelming trying to, you know, work out where everyone, who they are and why they are that way as opposed to well, but you don't you don't have a limited group not if you use a sperm bank it is a fluid process every single day in the life of a donor conceived person holds possibility of new half siblings coming along so you might have a core group that connected when the children were babies or young children but you're always going to be adding to that group oh. and people are going to be joining the group as as the new people. Um, so you're having to always integrate new people into the group. Oh, yeah, I, I know that. I'm looking at uh, moving forward. Obviously, when I um, decided to become a sperm donor myself was I'm a very aware person and I want the children going to people that I feel be good parents or people who had same mutual values as me. And I was like, well, if I had my sperm over to a clinic, I don't get to see all that. You know, all I see is a paying customer coming in going, that guy sounds good. We'll pick him. You know, I have no say on this, these children. And I think, well, what if these children reach out to me and they're like, I had a terrible upbringing. I was around domestic violence and, 
And I was just like, well, that's very inconsiderate of me just to hand it out there and not have that peace of mind of knowing where my genetic material is going to and then having to hear these people come back with these stories that, you know, I think that was very, you know, irresponsible for me. So for me, it was like, all right, well, I'm going to have a parents group. Uh, every person I help is uh, agrees not to go missing or disappear. And so we're all in this network that as these children are now asking questions, we're all sort of around it or we all have that ability to know about each other's child as they grow up and who they are. So, you know, there's some children that haven't came to these meetings and that, but their mums are showing them pictures of the other children and what they're doing so they know what they know about them. And, you know, obviously with these the clinic and children can see through the clinic and up and say about your child as well they're constantly you know there's not a set rooftop on ceiling on saying okay is there 25 siblings or is there 30 siblings or is there 35 or that's the number and that's it you know it's not like saying okay we found 26 or 35 you know like it's well and also they can be around the world right because now with local laws like in canada the uk australia like these local laws that say you can't be paid as a donor or you can't be anonymous, whatever. Now, basically around the world, everybody's importing U.S. sperm. Mm. So you can have a hundred half siblings around the world and they can be from New Zealand, Australia, the U.K., Germany, France, uh, Argentina and all across the USA, you know, so it's not like they can grow up knowing each other or easily knowing each other when they're so spread out around the world. Well, that's true. But I mean, look, I'm going to France in October this year. And I, if I was donor conceived, I would love to have a, a French sibling out there to show me the best you know, wine and dining places there. I couldn't think of anything better to go over there and go, all right. Well, but it's a fact of getting them all together, right? Yeah. It makes it very hard to get together as a group for the new people to meet everybody. It becomes very, you know, this person flies here, this person's going on vacation here. So it's not cohesive um, as far as everybody getting to know each other. It makes it much more uh, difficult to do that. Oh, you're definitely at a disadvantage if you're alone in a country by your, yourself. But uh, it, it as it says, is you don't need to be a part of everyone's daily lives. I guess these days I hear all these donor can see people have got those big group chats and they're all just, you know, they're all ch chatting in there and some are more regular and chatting than others, but then others just go in there and scroll through to see what they are, you know, what they've been up to or how their lives panning out and what's going on. And, or so-and-so's broken up with so-and-so or someone's having a baby, you know, like all those little, all those little moments. But um, yeah. Well, I mean, some emergency people really struggle. They say, these people are close to me. We share 50% of our DNA and it's upsetting to me that I can't know them. And it is for some donor conceived people, it's really an issue to have all of these close relatives out there that they're, that they can't really know or be a part of each other's lives. And it is for some people very difficult. But that comes back to what we just said before about, you know, the people with traditional siblings under the same rooftop that I don't get along with, you know, they don't sit there and go, you know what, this person's got 50% of my DNA and 
you know, it's sad that we just not best friends, you know, it's sad that we don't see each other, you know, so it's sad that we only see each other once per Christmas, you know, like there's, there is but that. They grew up with each other and then they made a choice. These people say, I don't even get the opportunity to get to know who these people are. And also I have half siblings out in the world that I'll never know about. And that doesn't feel comfortable to me. Mm. Yeah, I mean, look, it's one of those things for me. I'm very, I'm actually very mentally strong, headstrong as it is. But like the, you know, I've got cousins, you know, obviously siblings are more 50% GNA as opposed to 25%, say, with a cousin. But like I've got cousins, uh, part, part of the world that, you know, are unreachable for me. But it's like, you just, I don't know, for me, it's just like the world is so big out there now and, and we are all spanning out you know even across the usa there's a lot of people that move from the east coast to the west coast or you know let's live yeah, you know it's, that's different than saying who is my biological father i want to know who he is i want to hear him laugh i want to see his face i want to know about him i want him to know i exist as a human being i want him to know i'm somebody to be proud of it's very different very different for donor conceived people who really long to know their close genetic relatives. It's not the same as having second or third cousins out there that you don't know. This is much more personal. I mean, yeah, look, we're talking from different backgrounds here because obviously you're looking more clinical, whereas now I'm just saying I think clinical is still a shit option and I, I still feel that the parties need to pick each other on a face-to-face level or whether or not a, an ethical clinic sets themselves up and says, hey, you come in here and you meet a certain amount of people face to face and then select that's from your donor from there or or however you want to sort it up for me i think it's very close-minded to pick someone off a piece of paper like uh you know especially with technology that we got options we've got available now to explore at least and that's why i would never do it and that's why any of these children you know for instance if i got an instant message right now my phone from a mother saying you know one of the children wants to speak to you and i'm like well i'm just doing a podcast right now but uh i'll get to you in, a, in an hour or so you know and so i'll be there to be able to speak to them like you know what we're doing now you can see each other face to face from the other side of the world so i think technology in modern day technology in this time that we are now has really changed that compared to when your child grew up in those you know, in those times as well. And then you got to think, where's technology going in 20 years from now? Well, they're already talking about virtual reality. So I'm thinking in 20 years time, they're all going to be virtually in a room, whether or not they're in, in the other side of the, the world anyway. I mean, that's the way the world's going. I mean, look, we've got a phone in our hand now. 20 years ago, this was this was a brick. It was like, uh, you know, so, and... Yeah, so, I mean, we've seen it come a long way now in terms of uh, a change and, you know, the next children born tomorrow or, or the day after, they're going to be in a world that is fast, different even from today's, what we're, you know, what, how we're trying to analyse it even in today's society. Well, but I think for donor-conceived people, it's not much different from people born decades ago to now to the next decade because nothing really has changed with the sperm banking industry. It's still secretive, they still mandate anonymity, they still don't update medical records, they still don't share medical information, they still don't limit the number of kids. So really not very much has changed in the sperm donation industry 
if you're using a sperm bank. Well, yeah, I totally agree. And it all comes down to education. I mean, look, you could see what I have set up in Australia that I have got, because in Australia they don't pay their donors. Uh, so the men that I am attracting to my community are men who want to have an active part or be available or to want to see photo updates to or to have some rapport with those parents or to play the uncle figure. You know, we're getting all these. We're getting I have all a this. question. Yes. What about rights and responsibilities? Do you have to pay for college for all these kids? Well, no. I mean, unless there's very there's various amounts of setups. So, you know, this is the thing. People can come in there and a guy can be like, look, I am not good with babies, uh, you know, but I would like to co-parent. Once the child's older, I'd like to take them to sport or be part of them in that life because let's just face it there's a lot of shit parents out there that just aren't paternal or maternal you know they're just they just don't have it in them but then they can put up with people who are older and or we get um there's men who are donors who can't settle down and have a family because their work requires them to fly to sydney to melbourne you know they're flying all around or even in um to different countries you know they're not settled down in one area for long to to allow that lifestyle of happy families. So we get, we you know, we're getting a lot of people looking at co-parenting now, the single mothers by choice who were unfortunate never to find the one. And, you know, so everyone's sitting there and exploring their options. And this is the thing is that can give people so many options. For instance, people listen to this podcast and they know the importance of knowing how many donor conceived people that their donor may have. So, you know, someone will look at me and go, all right, um, you've got a mother's group, everyone's in that group, uh, you know, there's X amount of siblings, I'm happy to, knowing that information, happy to raise my children up, tell them that they have these many children, I'm happy to show them photos of these children, and I'm happy to go to these play groups and get, you know, like, which was essentially mother groups, and, uh, you know, introduce my children to this growing up. Whereas, you know, so for me, it's it offers so much more um psychological wise for these children than say this continuation of the sperm banks that continue to uh not wanting to let people meet to try and keep this identity hidden to at least 18 years old that continue to run all these old regimes that we know aren't working and so podcasts like this is to wake people up and go you know what i'm gonna start picking a, a known donor and then I, I bet you once everyone starts going down that route then the um, then the sperm banks will be, oh, hang on, we've been, we, everyone's wanting this now because they're realising it's better for our children and people have caught on about this message. We're going to have to change our stance. But until then, they're going to just keep riding that wave that they've been doing for, you know, since the dawn of time. Well, I have a question too because there's a lot of pluses, I think, for a known donor that are obvious, right? Having access and medical history and the child knowing their biological father. But I don't know about in Australia, but here, all of the lawsuits that have happened with sperm donors are all known donors because the rights and responsibilities are have to go by each state laws and how a judge sees what a parent is. So many of these donors are now being sued for child support and the parents are going to court because the donor wants time with the kids they don't want to give. So in all of the legal cases, they're all with known donors. 
because of um, changing rights and responsibilities and judges who ultimately decide what it is to be a parent. And many of the judges say, we don't care what agreement you had. You are the biological father and you are therefore liable for what it takes financially to raise this child. So that's one of the reasons why known donors, I think, are not bigger here because a donor could be liable for paying for college for many of their kids or medical expenses or education or, you know, anything. Well, yeah, it's a very good point. I mean, in Australia, the laws are pretty good in terms of protection-wise. We haven't had a, a lawsuit. We've never had a, you know, Sperm Donation Australia was created in 2015 and we've never had anyone go to um, court fight over custody. So we're, we're very grateful in the fact that we've got some laws that say if you donate artificially insemination, uh, that, you know, you aren't the child child that you are the donor, um, the donor. And it's allowed a lot of, um, you know, people to, to open up and allow them to meet their donor without that threat. Now, obviously, these children are going to be in a better environment of being able to be exposed to this person and um, uh, at comfort levels that suit both parties. Now, it really comes down to the USA and, you know, you know, we're putting all this focus and these, you know, advocates that were pushing for change or clinics to change. Well, the clinics aren't going to change. So maybe do we need to start pushing the governments to say, well, look, this is how these, these children are being born. This is how they're being raised. You know, why are our laws going to hold them responsible? You know, why should we hide our children from their donors because of the risk of, being paranoid about them being taken for custody or, you know, should we be able to create something that gives our child that option of meeting them without the ramifications of our, our, our own inst, um, insecurities and fears? That's sort of something that probably needs to be looked at. It's like, are we picking the fight with the wrong people, the sperm banks? Because, you know, they're set up, they're already established, but we've now got all this information about the psychological needs of these children what, how can we introduce them to these people without the fear and risk of, of unstabilizing their lives all of a sudden by welcoming them to child support or, you know, give, inviting them to custody in response to that? Yeah, I mean, it is the way it is because that's the way the industry set it up. And they're very invested in making sure that nothing changes, you know, because that's how they make their money by not properly counseling and educating donors and parents at the front door and by mandating 18 years of anonymity, which is impossible, but it's still very deceptive because they promise it by not sharing and updating medical information by, you know, they claim to do yearly medical updates on donors. They don't. Um, so, but this is the industry and it stays the way it is because there's no regulation and no oversight. Nobody's watching. So basically, they can just do whatever they want. I mean, you can look at it in terms of known donors, online donors in Australia versus online donors, say, in the United Kingdom. And there's, there's very two different set-up communities in terms of how the standards are, the lack of professionalism, and the openness. So, for instance, the laws in Australia are pretty good. They protect the donors and they protect the parents. Whereas in the UK, it's if you donate through artificial insemination outside of a clinic, you are 
liable of being the father. So then we've got everyone using fake names or, you know, like no pictures. And you, and then the attitude of all that is, is then, then the people who are the recipients, they're going in and they're, they're very critical, you know, they're very, you know, it's not a very charming, like open conversation as opposed to in Australia where everyone's friendly, they get to meet each other because all the cards are on the table. Here it's like secret backdoor deals, you know what I mean? Like I'll meet you in an alleyway and hand over some sperms, you know, so, and this is because the government's law setup is doing this and that's the sort of people that they're attracting by their laws. Now, I can tell you that the children growing up in Australia who are going to be donor conceived through known donors are going to have a much more better upbringing and more information available to them due to the um, the laws, you know, Matt Lamb and the um, transparency as opposed to these children in the UK uh, that are going to be growing up. And you're going to see a clear difference in the type of psychological needs and uh, traumas and responses over time uh, from these two, you know, you know, as I said, some of these children now of mine are seven years old. So as these progress into adults and start, you know, telling their story, we're going to see a tale of two conflicting, um, you know, stories that uh, unfold here. And it's all because of governments and their law setups that everyone's basing themselves around that are not allowing these children to have the access out of peer, um, parents' fears and instabilities around the laws. How many kids have you helped to create? So I have never numbered them because when I spoke to a lot of donor conceived people, they were, especially with known donors, they didn't want to see themselves as a notch in the belt to a donor, like as if they were doing it for numbers or they're number driven. Like in America. Yeah, you have to keep track of who oh, you're children. Definitely do. I could go into my mother's group and count them all. I've got, I've got a register that I've, Listed them all in a note in a um, Microsoft notes, but they're not numbered. They're not numbered. They're all. No, no, I didn't say assign yeah. them numbers. I just asked yeah. how many do you have when you have children in a. Regular so, so I've I've helped. Ask how many kids do you have? I've helped close to twenty families now. Okay, so. now as these kids get to be adolescents, they might want to spend time with you. It might be very important for them to have time with their biological father. How do you juggle in your free time with your wife and kids that you, I don't know if you have already or you might have, how do you juggle 20 other kids who want time from you, who want attention from you? Well, I've done a lot of research in this and I've had a lot of um, donor conceived people on the, on the show and on the channel. So I've spoken to many of them and I feel that, that they want more for instance they want more to do to do with their siblings who are the same age group who are you know have the same uh you know they go out and party or go out and hang out at uh, age related places so for me it's like i don't feel that they're going to want enough to do with me than what i'm willing to give i'm happy to give as well. i'm a very social person if someone wants to come over and have a barbecue each weekend and whoever wants to rock up at that time is is going to be open invite right now these children, uh, you know, we have um, group meetups every three to four months. Um, the month, uh, you know, that I come to, I bring my two children there. They love playing with the their half siblings. They're forming all these relationships with these half siblings. 
uh, my door is always open. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, they're going to know that there's 20 families there, and that, but there's going to be an allocated day of the week that they're all invited to come down and be a part of. So I just really don't see people think it's going to be overwhelming. I think I'm going to have a very interesting life as a, as a donor. And I think if you're not open and, you, you know, because there's two, there's two different types of personalities, you're either introverted or extroverted. And when you're trying to decide if this is a good thing or a bad thing, you know, are you looking at it from an introverted point of mind or are you looking at it as an extroverted point of mind? Well, for me, I'm very extroverted. So I'm, you know, my door's open. I'm ready to party. So then you feel like you can adequately meet the needs, whatever those needs are, if those kids do want to spend time with you. Well, you talk about the needs, but I mean, how many times do you see these donor can see people's stories and they're like, well, you know, I have access to my donor, but I've never reached out to him, but we're all friends with, you know, all the siblings are talking together, you know, like, oh, I'm not sure if I want to meet the donor, but they're all happily meeting the siblings. A lot of the times the donor is the actually the last person that they want to reach out to and contact, or it's the biggest hurdle for them. So... You know, I don't feel like someone's going to be a grown adult that they need me on call 24-7 to, to uh, you know, tuck them in at night. You know, I feel that uh, if they want to come out and hang out and have a barbecue or invite me out to, you know, the, if they're getting married or, you know, if they're going to engagement party or that, I'll, I'll, be, I'll, be, I'll be rocking up. Yeah, no, I wasn't speaking about adults. I mean, adolescents, you know, or kids. 8, 10, 12, who, well, you know, there's different points in life when bonding with different parents matters, right? Like earlier in life, it's bonding with the mother. Then, especially for boys, there's that age where having a male role model and bonding and spending time, it mm. is like fathers matter. It does matter. Well, and, and kids really desire that. Yeah, look, it's, it's interesting because the world's changed so much. You know, for me, when I went to school, I was in a community in Australia where it was predominantly white. And I think we had one Asian boy and he was like this little token dude that you were like, well, he's so cool. Cause like he's different. And, but you didn't, you know, see him as a different race or anything. He was just different. And it's like these children now, like everyone in everyone that I went over with and, and hanged out with and had sleepovers with during when I was a, a primary school student going up you know, they were all, uh, they weren't single mothers, you know, they weren't, it was the divorce rate then in that area that I was in was, you know, I never went to a parent's house that was raised by a single mom. There was always a mother and father or something like that. And it wasn't this concept now that I, you know, when I walk my children into their primary school, that I'm seeing half the parents in there are single mums or same-sex couples or, you know, there's so many range of diversity now and even ethnicities compared to that token one Asian child in my child um, in my class, as opposed to half the class being diverse now, and um, you know, there's so it's so different. And when I broke up with my uh, ex-wife back in 2018, you know, I was worried about my children, um, you know, being a shock to their system and you know their needs and you know their emotional needs and. I think they actually did better than what I did with from it all because the children that they grew up with in primary school, you know, they've already seen like friends breaking up during um, their friends, parents breaking up during that time, or there's kids that they go over that are um, 
from single mothers or um, families that they knew that these children, um, you know, they obviously don't have a real good concept of money and, and financials and all that, but they could see that these children were growing up still fine under the roof. So when we broke up, they were like, meh, you know, they didn't really, it didn't actually really bother them as opposed to what I thought in my own head it would bother them and what it bothers me. Now, I have one last question for you. Um, I don't know if you have a girlfriend or if you're dating, but is it an issue for you to tell new women in your life that you have more than 20 children? <laughs> well, you know what? I am I am currently dating someone and uh, basically my name and profile these days, people do the Google searches and that, and uh, there's a whole shitload of pages about me out there. So, you know, like they, um, the person who finds me or wants to um, have that relationship with me, they know what they're signing up for. It's all transparent. It's all out there. Uh, so, uh, which makes it easier for me because, you know, for me, it's like one of those things, if I do find a new partner, they have got to understand that, um, you know, I have made a promise to existing mothers that I will provide them with direct siblings, you know. So it's one of those things where whether or not I take on any new people, that's a different story. But uh, existing people who have made those promises, uh, you know, I'll have to uh, hand over some cups still to uh, allow them to finish their families. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, but look, (laughs) well, you know, it's cool. Like, you know, I've had a a partner in the past that, um, you know, I brought her down to these meetups and, uh, you know, they've seen um, all the other mothers and kids interacting and playing and they've walked away with, because like, you know, I was like, okay, this is going to be interesting. Let's see what the response is going to be. And, um, you know, they walked away from going, you know what, that was pretty cool. Like I'll come to the next one. So you know, it's actually not really, um, you know, when you live in uh, with a mindset of being so open, open about it and the positivity about it, you know, it doesn't make it, it's not really a, an experience that people are going to go, oh, that was awful. That was dreadful. You know what I mean? You're seeing this interesting uh you know, connections of like a like a little village of, of, of people that you probably haven't seen before because it's not really unique to your traditional growing up of, say, your original parents under one rooftop. So I think it's actually, you know, if it's done right and it's done with the right intentions, I feel that a lot of people, you know, will think that's pretty cool. And I'm like, you know, if my partner does that and he's, and always he's, I think a lot of people see me as what I've done and put out there and the time that I've done and the love that I put into it. And they think probably think, well, you know, he's such a passionate person and, and caring person to have that, you know, care around me. And, you know, obviously they might think that I'm a good person to have around them as well because of that nature. So, you know, I think it probably has some perks. But then obviously there is some people go, oh, that's weird. Like, you know, but they're the people that don't, you never, you never, because I'm so transparent from the outset, you know, I don't, they don't really invite themselves into my lives and I'm happy for them not to come into my lives either if they if that's the way they think. So yeah, it's uh it's been uh it's been interesting dating in the last few years anyway. <laughs> yeah, I would imagine so. Um so you know what okay, what about your child then? You know, is is he more 
interested in siblings or the donor or finding the donor like you know what's the the situation with him and and uh, how many current siblings is 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 he at to date and you know how many is he close to or you know how many people you know how does that dynamic go because we sort of touched around it but i mean let's you know directly in in his situation what have you observed from from that story in your inner sanctum Right. So my son was the first donor conceived person to locate his donor through a commercial DNA test. So it hadn't been done before that. It was before 23andMe, before Ancestry. Um, Back in 2004, when he swabbed his cheek, it was just a company called Family Tree DNA. And he was able to figure out who his biological father was. So that's when he was 15 and he reached out to the guy back then. And, uh, and so he got to meet and know and incorporate his biological father into our family circle. And he got two grandparents out of the deal because he got to meet his biological father and his grandparents who embraced him with open arms and, I can't imagine our lives without them. You know, we've just expanded our family. And then over the years, every year, it seems like another one or two come along lately. Um, But my son now is 24, half brothers and sisters. And um, yeah, and they're coast to coast and, you know, outside of the U.S. as well. So it's kind of hard to get together. We've We've done a couple of get togethers, but it's, you know, smaller groups, Mm. but yeah, I mean, they're all his half brothers and sisters, his biological father, you know, he, my son didn't use the donor. He doesn't have a donor. He has a biological father. Um, I used a donor, which really wasn't a donor because no one donates. They're all paid, you know, if you go through a sperm bank, but anyway, so um, yeah, for him, it's his biological father and his grandparents, his biological grandparents. And we were of the view that um, we wanted to see what was possible to expand family and include everybody. We're very much um, maybe like you in the way that we're about inclusion, not exclusion. And I think we're secure enough to know that expanding family can be a really positive and wonderful experience. And it has been for me and for my son. I mean, if he's under the age of 18, you know, was that ever, we talked about people being paranoid about the laws or getting in all these legal battles, you know, at the end of the day, America has 300 million people. And I I do hear those stories over, over there about the odd known donor or been taken for custody or child support or wanting wanting you know access to the children but i mean there's not that many stories in a population of 300 million that you know it's really you're going to be very unfortunate if that's going to be happen to you but i mean what do you say to people that are you know because you're all about inclusion what do you say to people then about these hurdles of getting your head around the law and and saying you know it's this meet allowing him to meet and form these relationships where he's got an extra set of grandparents now that you know well it's different if you're talking about using a facility a clinic or a sperm bank and 
using a known donor. Those are two very different legal situations. There have been no lawsuits about rights or responsibilities with a donor from a sperm bank. There are no rights or responsibilities. That's very clearly the law. The problem legally comes when you use a known donor because then it's up to any judge in any state, in any district to decide what it is to be a parent. And many of them have decided we don't care what your agreement was. You're the biological father and you therefore need to pay money and help raise this child and you get the rights, the visitation rights. So a lot of in the, on the known donor side, that's where every single lawsuit that you've heard of in the United States has been with a known donor where people went into it thinking it would be one way. And then the donor realized, I want to spend more time with the kid and I have the right to, or I'm going to take you to court. Or parents say, well, when we made this agreement, we were both working and now me and my wife don't have jobs and we need you to pay for the kid. And things like that with changing and evolving situations that maybe the people didn't think about upfront. What do you feel about male role models you know does it have to be the biological father or the donor uh you know for instance same-sex couples i know that uh sometimes there's a lot of same-sex couples where the biological mother has said hey i think it's good for my child to meet you but my uh, partner is insecure about it or they're wanting to please the partner um, first before the child because obviously the child doesn't have a big enough voice at that time to speak up so they're just keeping the the partner happy rather than and I've had same sex couples before that I've actually taken the the plunge to do it and the non biological mum even said to me she goes you know what I was really worried about this but you know what this is actually really cool and I actually really do enjoy it now that it's been opened up to me and and you know what yeah you, you aren't taking a child away from me you're not. You know, at the end of the day, I'm the one raising it and taking it to school and sport and changing snappies or, you know, and all that sort of stuff and, and creating those bonds. And that and they see once they've been introduced to it that, you know, it hasn't really taken nothing away from them. But then they've also seen the the smiles on their children's faces as being exposed to it. I mean, so what what have you noticed in, in that field of for donor conceived people and children growing up? I think wherever there's a non-biological parent, there's more challenges, whether that's the infertile dad of a heterosexual couple or infertile mom or um, in an LGBT, you know, um, two women or two men, where there's a non-biological parent, that non-biological parent can feel very threatened by a donor, you know, because the donor has a connection to that child that they themselves don't have. And uh, we had, we published a paper on, we surveyed 244 non-biological parents to really hone in on what those issues are and kind of see like at the root of what is this problem. A lot of donor conceived people, it's because of the non- <clears throat> <clears throat> excuse me, the non-biological parent that they haven't been allowed to connect with half-siblings or donors. And I think specifically to the LGBTQ uh, community, because their rights as parents have not been given for decades, I think they're particularly sensitive to the issue of being acknowledged as a parent. Um, and so the non-biological parent is maybe even more worried or scared 
about uh, their child connecting with with a biological parent, a donor. Yeah, it's interesting because when I see the two parents come down with the child, I don't look at the, you know, I just see them as both as the parents. I don't look at them and go, okay, that's the one I'm, you know, that's biologically our baby and that one's not, you know, I don't see them on any different le levels from each other. You know, they, well, they, but they see themselves, you know, yeah, it's very different. Yeah. Not always, but a lot of the time it's very different. So what would your advice be for the biological mother that feels that she's stuck in this position of, you know, what's doing right for the child or what's doing right to the partner? You know, what what advice can you give to help them navigate this, you know, to to uh, make it end up, you know, the right the right choice or the right um, scenario outcome? Well, I think it all comes down to communicating with the non-biological parent and making them feel comfortable and it, <clears throat> and having them realize that there's nothing to fear. No one's going to replace you as a parent. This isn't a taking away from, it's an adding to. So no one's going to take away your role as parent. The child isn't going to replace the donor, you know, replace you with this donor. I think you really, it takes a lot of dialogue and work and counseling perhaps for the non-biological parent to work through their own fears and hesitations and worries so that they too can do what's best for the child and not be making decisions for their child based on fear. They should be making decisions for their child based on love, not fear. I, I totally agree with that. I mean, do you feel that maybe same-sex um, couples you know, they obviously may have been raised in a traditional environment of, you know, them having a mother and father and they're sort of thinking, well, we're going to try and replicate this path as much as possible rather than saying, hey, we're in a unique position here where we've had to create a family a little bit different, but, you know, what's, you know, but they haven't been exposed to these branching out sort of families where it's like, okay, well, you know, you've got my parents, my grandparents and their parents, their grandparents, and then we've also got the donor there as well that can be an ex an extension you know like is it is it trying to get people's heads in the right space that it's okay to have extensions of family out there like the more love right, the but better. that doesn't doesn't take the place of a father we asked donor conceived people specifically in two of our surveys uh one was children with straight parents the other was donor conceived people from um lgbt parents and we asked them have you felt there was something missing in your life by not being raised by a father or a, ro a male role model? And a large percentage of both groups said yes. So yeah, I mean, with my son, I got him a big brother from the big brother organization. He had tutors and mentors and I, I was throwing men at him, you know, because I thought I can teach him what it is to be a good human being and a good person, I cannot teach him what it is to be a man. I, it's just not in my toolbox, you know? Um, and donor conceived people reiterate that, that they have felt something missing by not being raised by a father. Like fathers do matter. So is there substitutions to that? I mean, it, can you, a lot of people think they can bypass this by just, um, you know, Bring in granddad or pop, you know, like, um, you know, their grandparents. 
is a, an older male role figure different to say someone of your 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 parental mother's age you know is is that is that a, a good substitute or is it more you know to have that sort of biological father in some shape way or form uh, around yeah it matters i mean that's what donor conceived people told us it matters they felt something missing from their lives because they were not raised by a father. And so, and a lot of those kids are like mine, had, um, you know, male role models or uncles or grandfathers, or my son had his big brother that he spent time with. Um, and still they felt something missing in their lives by not being raised by a father. There's a, a very unique and special relationship with a father that's different than an uncle or a friend or a big brother or a grandparent. It's, it's a very unique and special relationship, just like being raised by a mother is a very unique and special relationship. And if you didn't have a mother, you could throw all the women in there, you know, that might help, but no one's going to replace the fact that you don't have a mother. It's the same with a father. No, it's very valid point. With your son, what sibling count is he up to now? 25. 25. And how many of those siblings is he, you know, would he say are in, in, a, in a real close circle or, you know, how how does he break down those relationships in terms of, um, you know, it, you know as you said, you know, he's not going to get along with all of them and that's just human nature or like it's not that they're bad people or he's a bad person for not liking them all, but like, you know, how does he break down those bonds and relationships in terms of being able to navigate it functionally in his life? I think it's really difficult. Again, the challenge is none of them live near each other. So they can't meet up for a drink or go out to dinner or spend casual time with each other. So it makes it very difficult. Everything is online. So um, our group, like many other groups, they have, you know, we have a little Facebook page just for the half siblings and any parents that want to join. Um, and then some of them have broken off. Like, I think there's a girls group, you know, where um, all the half sisters have their own group to talk about girl things, you know, that they didn't want the boys in on. And, um, <laughs> you know, um, and then there's, you know, of my son hasn't met maybe maybe he's met half of them. So there's a lot of them he hasn't even met because they don't live anywhere close and everyone has different work schedules and life and families. And it just makes it, it's the distance that is the biggest challenge to having half sibling and donor connections. So for instance, say, obviously I'm a known donor and I get to pick who I help and, you know, they, uh, come to me from, you know, uh, all directions, I guess. So would it be, you know, if I'm picking someone out to help, you know, should I be mindful as a donor of say, like, okay, obviously the way I set up is everyone's going to be connected. Everyone has, everyone's going to be in this group from the, from day one that they, you know, they're aware of each other. So, you know, they're not popping up like mushrooms later. Is it best for, say, if I, say, if I help, the 20 families that I did, right? Say 20 families. Would it be best to have all 20 in that one state or would it be best to, say, have five in, in, in each state so they're all sort of got their own little web and then they can 
you know, at least there's like a enough to keep them happy, but then they can all travel over, say, you know, once a year or or mix it up every year and and go to, you know, one you know these these meetings rather than say one person be here and they feel isolated from the rest of them. You know, like what have you yeah, seen I mean, in I terms of that? They should all have access to each other, right? Even geographically. Why make it difficult for them to get to know their half brothers and sisters? Make it as easy as possible for them. If they want to go play with this one, if they're younger, play with that one. Or the moms want to have dinner together or want to have play dates. Why not make it easy for them, for the kids to get to know their half brothers and sisters? Yeah, like it's it's, it's one of those things because I thought I helped one person in another state. And I'm like, well, ideally I'd like to help one or two more people in that state just so that these children don't feel like they're left out compared to ones in a different state. So it's one of those things that you, you, you're weighing up and you're thinking, ah, oh, you know, like, is it the right thing? Is it the right choice? Or should I help some more people in that state? So then that those kids have that sort of like little network around. Yeah. But then you've got, you've still got an isolated group that doesn't get to know the main group, you know? Yeah, I do. But I I do feel like uh, you can sort of, you know, for instance, it's like some people have um, families that are split up, you know, where half their mother's side is on one side of the country and half their father's on the other side. And, you know, they grow up with obviously one side more, but it's one of those ones that you have this curious interest that you're staying in contact with the other side, but obviously you're not, you're not there, there, you know what I mean? Um, as opposed to that one person living a very isolated life by themselves. Like, I don't know. I'd feel that if I was in the sibling network, I would, you know, like for me, for instance, say I had siblings, say, say I lived in Los Angeles and I had siblings in New York. I'd rather go over and see a group of three of them than just go over and see a group of one of them. That makes sense. Like, you know, catch up and see all three at once rather than, you know, make a, make a trip of it or a occasion of it rather than just go, all right, I've got to go over there and just see one as opposed to I've got to go over and see one in New York. I go down and see one in Miami or like, you know, like all that sort of spread out. So I don't know. It's one of those things that you, you know, you look at because I mean, in America, you've got 50 States and they're all, it seems like everyone's here, here, there and there, which makes it really impossible to have a catch up with everyone because they're so, you know, everyone's, in different locations as opposed to like three or four different locations. That's very challenging. You know, that is the most challenging part for half siblings who want to get to know each other. You know, it's, I would say distance is the biggest hurdle. If everyone lived in the same town, they'd be meeting each other all the time, you know, spending time together. But the way that it's set up here with the sperm banks and they just ship everywhere, uh, it just makes it very hard to know and establish face-to-face relationships with your close relatives. So going down the timeline, you created the Donor Sibling Registry. Obviously, you've seen there was not enough information out there you're trying to navigate it yourself and this sort of came into fruition. Let's go down that path. So, yeah, we had to, my son was curious, you know, as a child 
And basically we had to wait for social media to be invented. And luckily it was invented in the year 2000. Um, and back at the beginning, it was just Yahoo groups. That was really the beginning of social media. So we started in September of 2000, we started a Yahoo group thinking maybe Ryan isn't the only curious donor conceived person. We had no way of knowing um, but I knew I had a curious kid. And so we started the DSR basically saying uh, my first post was something like, I have a, a, an awesome 10 year old kid who is curious about his donor relatives. And um, we're wondering if anyone else on here is curious as well. And we basically waited a couple of years. We only had like less than 40 members after two years but then we got some national media attention and then some worldwide media attention and it blew up. I think before we came along, people didn't know that they had the right to be curious, the right to search for and the right to connect with and define the relationships for themselves of, with their donor relatives. So the more that people knew about us and knew that there was a place, a platform where you could find and connect with your, for donors, you know, with their kids and for kids with their biological parents and half siblings. Once people knew that there was a platform to do that on, then, um, you know, we started growing like crazy once the word got out. And here we are, you know, tw almost 23 years later, and we have now more than 86,000 people and more than 100 and something countries around the world. And we've connected people from their small local clinics, as well as from the U.S. and Danish sperm banks that ship around the world. And we've connected now almost 25,000 people. So, um, you know, not a day goes by on the donor sibling registry where people don't connect. It happens every single day. So it's not like, oh, well, occasionally we match people. No, we do it every single day. It's, I mean, I look at the figures and that's a lot of families, 25,000 people and, and the connections that keep happening and unfolding every day. But how many people are donor conceived. I think they believe there might be 10 to 15 million people out there now that... Um... All the numbers are completely made up. There's no way to know. Any numbers that anyone gives you, they're all made up because no one has any idea. But the reality is, let's say there's 10 million and what do you... In your donor sibling registry, why do you what, say why? I'm curious. Why did you choose the number ten million? Well, it's a well mathematical wise, you know, ten, twenty, thirty. You know, you know, it could be fifty, or it could say a hundred million. Whatever, you know, just something to round up. What if it's um, one million? Well, yeah, if it's one million, that's fine. Um, but I mean, I think the the way you see all the people coming through the doors is probably almost a 1 million people born that way per year now, maybe, or, you know, they're that busy, these clinics now. And, you know, there a lot of people now that were, you know, you even look at same sex relationships now that's been normalized in society and people are allowed to get married. It was, you know, back then in the early 2000s and nineties to have a child was something that people would look at and go, 
how are you raising a child? You you know, you haven't got a, a partner, like a male partner, as opposed to now, as I said, touching back on my childhood, I never saw any same-sex parents raising children in, in my school years, uh, as opposed to now going into my children's class and seeing a lot of it. So, you know, you can see that acceptance and normalization has, has made progression where people are feeling that safe enough to, to have these families. So obviously, you know, people are coming through the doors more rapid rapid rates than ever before, really, due to be, feeling like they can and, and having access to it. Because I think there was some people, there were some places, even in the early days that, uh, well, even they neglected uh, single mothers by choice to have children through their clinic, as now they see as a business opportunity. Oh, yeah, sure, come through and we'll give you give you one. And some, you know, were anti-gay as well. Like there was some, I think I've done some podcast episodes in the past where uh, they were uh, discriminated against when when going through that option of going through a clinic, whereas now it's like, Oh yes, you know, well, you know, welcome. We see you as dollar signs, whereas before, it was, you know, there was a bit of you know judgment, I guess, compared to these days where they've got past that and they just see the dollar figures. So yeah, there's a lot of people now that are going for a rapid rate. So I mean, look, we can say one million or ten million. It it doesn't matter. But I mean, the you know the people you've got this massive network. It's it's a big network that you can do many studies on. You know, you can. But as you said, we don't know who everyone is. Now, you know, if you've got 280 or 300,000, say around up to 300,000 people on the donor simple rate um, registry that come and gone in, in those years or still part of it or, or, or you know, whatever, as opposed to 10 million out there, you know, that's not even, you know, 10% of, of that community. So are we seeing the most curious people or the most traumatised people coming to those community, you know, like uh, as opposed to ones that say probably most of them don't know. That's probably the number one factor. Most of them don't know. But then there's exactly. got to be, but then there's got to be a factor as well or how many people do know but they don't want that support or don't need that support or choose to turn a blind eye to that support. You know, is it, you know, where, where do you break down these figures? Like, um, are we getting accurate figures? Because we know we what we do know is is a lot of them do have trauma. There is there is a lot of them out there, obviously, that are giving you these responses in the polls and that. But we're not getting the input of the obviously the total lot. Um, you know, we're getting the people that are walking through your doors, that coming and seeing the service that you provide, which you know is 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 offering them so much. But it's only you know, is it dictating? you know, more, more, the, more the picture than what the bigger picture actually is, you know, I mean, is, it's, is it just one angle of an angle that we're, we may not be seeing? There's no way to know. We can't know what we don't know. <laughs> you know, we don't know how many donor conceived people are out there. We don't know how many are born every year. No donor conceived person knows how many half siblings they have. It's just, that's just the way it is. So yeah, we have a community of 86,000 people. Is that representative of all donor conceived people? No way to know. You know, um, I think it becomes more representative because many of the donor conceived people on our website have grown up on our website, you know, over because we've been around for 23 years. 
So a lot of the donor families have kind of grown up being able through our website to grow up knowing their half brothers and sisters. So we've helped to uh, normalize that and, you know, shine a light on the importance of allowing that for donor conceived people. But we have a lot of adult donor conceived people coming to our site who, um, you know, really have struggled because they just found out, uh, you know, that their parents have lied to them all along or their parents are just feel so threatened by the idea of them connecting with half siblings or their biological parents. And, you know, that causes trauma too, because they're betraying their parents, yet they feel very torn. And, um, you know, it can be very, very complicated, but it doesn't have to be. With your, with what you've done, you know, you've, you've, you've gone out and you've set the, you know, you've offered something that's never really been offered before, uh, you know, and it's something that provides so much, but you, you're running a community that has a lot of a trauma associated with it, you know, something that we're trying no, to. No, I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say that my community has trauma. Um, I think there is an element of adult donor conceived people who a were not told and B, who don't have supportive parents, but that is a very small minority of who who is on the donor sibling registry. Well, I, don't, I haven't been on the donor sibling registry to see, but I'm on the Facebook groups. I see, um, I see people, and they're all they're all saddened by uh, parts in their life that have happened. That they're you know something you know I've had. Um, you know, obviously, I think we've all had uh, disappointments in life that, you know, that we can either hold on to or we can move on to from. And and some of these um, events in their lives leave them on there, on these communities that they're always venting or, you know, looking for that support or giving that support. You know, yeah. I, I, no, that's I'm, not us. That's not us. So there is a small but very vocal group of very angry donor conceived people that is not us okay yeah the, and not, they're not representative of donor conceived people they're small they're very vocal a lot of them are very hurt they're very broken they're very angry because they were not told young or their parents have not been supportive i think most of them fall under one of those two umbrellas not all but most that is not representing the large majority of donor conceived people. Okay, great. <laughs> great that we ripped the band-aid off. Because um I've come across these people as well. And these people, um, you know, I've I I I chat to everyone. I want to work out why they are the way the way they are, I want to know why the way they feel, and then I, you know, I'm not devalidating the way that they feel, but there is these communities that once you become a part of toxicity, it, it normalizes that and then it feeds the toxicity to a point of hatred that there's like they form, I wouldn't say cults, but these groups that that's their, you know, they want to burn and destroy everything in its path. And for instance, I look at your story and I think what an amazing story. A person went through the clinic, got told not to tell their child this, they overcome that new right from wrong and then put out all these you know, resources that allow um, parents not to fall into um, 
mistakes or to make them realize these children are going to be asking these questions before they, you know, too late down that pathway. I look at that and I think that's amazing. Now, I know from running community myself, and you've I've told you a bit about my story and how my arrangements are with my parents or the parents that I help and the connections that we're trying to form. Now, I listen to what they're saying about, and a lot of that was based on me going down that pathway of being so open and creating that because that was what they were demanding. But then what I created, then that's not good enough. You know, they hate hate that. They hate everything about me. They hate, they hate Wendy Kramer. Um, they hate me more than anybody. And it's so funny to me because nobody has done for donor conceived people what I've done. Like I've, I help them connect with their, their biological family. Like I'm not the sperm bank and they're hate for me. And if you ask them why, the only reason ever that any of them has ever given me is because we charge a yearly fee to be on the donor sibling registry. And when I say to them, we're a charity organization, where would I get the money to rebuild the website and to, you know, we're a big organization. We need to keep running. Like every organization needs money. They won't even go near that. They say, oh, you're greedy or, you know, you did this to make money. And, you know, at this point, like, I don't even dialogue with them anymore. They're, they're just intent on hating me for some reason, even though I work my ass off seven days a week, 365 days a year to help donor conceived people. That's it. Not making money. We're, we're a charity. Nobody makes money here. And I work really, really hard to educate the public and help the families and support everybody um, and connect people who want to be connected. And the way that they have made me the target of their hatred, it's like they haven't been able to work through the own their own anger with their own families or their own parents. And it's misplaced anger that they put elsewhere, you know? And I think it's just really misplaced when they put it on me. Um, but there's nothing I can do about it. You know, no. they, they can say what they want to say. All I do is I just keep doing my job. I, I know, I think I've probably gone through the same emotions that you have uh, in terms of, you know, you created a platform alternatively to what I had in terms of, you know, I wanted to create good people coming in and meeting each other and forming these relationships and having children this way and, you know, all these feel-good moments. And likewise, you've created this positive community that you want to bring all these people in. You want to create these connections, these friendships, establishments. But, yes, it takes time and um, it takes resources and money to to create a website to to uh, um, you know to make sure it's fully functional to make sure that it's still running to a standard you know like if you walk away from it it can just all blow up you know yeah well just one example is we had to rebuild the back end of our website so just the coding not the front end what everybody sees but the back end coding. And that was a project that cost $300,000. And when I asked these people, where would I get that $300,000? No one has an answer for me. Well, that's why we charge a very nominal fee of $99 a year or 
$199 forever. You never pay again. It's very small considering what you get for it. And without that membership fee, we don't have any don big donors, you know, money donors. Nobody, there's no outside support. All we have are the membership fees. And that allows us Next time I'll be able to rebuild my website or maybe I can do the front end and make it not so ugly or, you know, it takes money to run an organization and their comeback is, well, you're a charity. And it's like, oh, for God's sakes, you don't understand what it takes to run a business, whether it's a charity or a for-profit, it takes money. Like you still have bills to pay. You know, I'm still working my 70 hours a week. Yeah, it's just so frustrating because it's an illogical argument. The New York Times did a story about this guy called Jonathan Maja that's got 900 children um, and it's, it's going to be turned to a Netflix show next year and there was courts all going on in civil in in um, Netherlands just the last couple of months. Yep. And um, they, the, I interviewed one of their parents who was irate about the situation and that the child is in and uh and that he had many forms of names and identities and all that and i sort of said okay well this is how i do sperm nation australia this is how i set it up this is how we screen for fake accounts and we make sure they send verifications you know so guys like him can't join again under a, like you know um a different alias and, uh, you know, I said this way, you know, there's nothing like that in sperm. Um, there's no nothing like that in Netherlands over there to do that. And I said, OK, well, you know, if you want to do some positivity for the future, um, you know, I'll help you set it up and you can sort of run a hand, uh, run it your way and come for me for guidance or any input that you may need. And they're like, oh, yes, that's a great idea. Um, you know, help protect the donor conceived people for the future. Blah, blah, blah. I was like, yes, exactly. And then when push came to shove, I set it up for them and um, none of them wanted to spend that time allocating doing that. There you go. It takes a lot of really, really hard work and nobody wants to do it. You know, that's why I work alone. <laughs> You know, it's me and me and 86,000 people. And I take care of all 86,000. I reply to all emails immediately. Like I'm super responsive because I want to treat people the way that I would want to be treated. And I want them to know that they matter and their experiences and their stories matter. And they deserve to be taken care of because so many of them have not been taken care of by the infertility industry. So the way I run the donor sibling registry is different than that. I want everyone to know that they're or feel like they're being taken care of. Mm. I mean, look, I've had a couple of stalkers in my day. One was first one I ever had was a South American guy who was um, trying to be a predator to women and quickly shut that down and removed him. And obviously I put a warning out there and then he was trying to, uh, um, send me uh, a summonings to court for defamation, um, despite all these people willing to testify. And it was a couple of these women who publicly spoke up about him. He was knocking on people's doors, looking up in the, um, you know, the white pages, yellow pages directory, trying to like hunt them down and rock up to the doors. And it was quite full on. It was eye opening. And then recent times, I had this lady from New Zealand. Um, she was same sex couple. She grew up with male trauma, um, where she was, um, uh, I think, uh, 
abused from a, a male family member or someone close by. And um, so her view is, is a male shouldn't be uh, running all this and uh, she's going to, she created her own page, but then no one joined her. And then she wants to get Facebook shut down so everyone can join her page. So she's got a campaign out there trying to get people to send screenshots about me or try and, you know, and she's been digging it for years. And it's just like this obsession that they wake up and I, and like, Speaking on it today with you is something I sort of don't really bring up because it's sort of I don't want to feed the fire. But I mean, it's when I see someone um, in, in your situation, I relate very, I, I relate very um, close to because it's like these are real life scenarios that I, I, I've had to deal with, and I just think, I think, wow, because like I set this up for people to be happy, and I'm doing like I wake up every day trying to do the right thing, and then I've got all these people trying to push my agenda is something else or I'm someone that I'm not. And um, it's just crazy that they spend this much time devoted to me. And I still find out now, even though I haven't said anything about them or try and, you know, that they're still actively at work trying to, uh, you know, they wake up every day obsessed with me. And I just think, wow, this is just crazy um, obsession and it's not healthy, but that's the sort of thing when you put yourself on a big, pedestal i guess of, of creating a community that draws in so many people you are going to get this unwanted attention from someone that can't be appreciative of the good things that you do or refuse to see it as a good thing that you do well like i said i feel i'm lucky it is a very small group but very vocal group you know so people i can't tell you in my consulting that i do how many people come to me after finding that group first and thinking all donor conceived people are angry and upset and oh my god i'm raising a donor child and they're going to end up angry like that and i have to do so much damage control for donor conceived people and for parents to say that is not the only way that those those people are not representing all donor conceived people they're a very small group. Most donor conceived people that I know are not angry and they're not spewing vitriol and um, yeah, the, but it's the group that people find, you know, and that's the group too. They're like, well, we're going to make a donor sibling registry and we're going to have it be free. And I'm like, right, we were free too for the first five years until we got to like 7,000 members. And then I couldn't afford, it was all my money. I couldn't afford to keep building the website bigger and doing all this. I had to turn to my members for help. So yeah, have at it. You know, you start your own registry and of course they start and then they fizzle out because nobody's willing to work 70 hours a week. That's what it takes, right? So yeah, when we started, we were free too. But then at one point, you know, I had my friends and my family were like, you need to ask your community to help you. You're helping them. Let them help you build the donor sibling registry to account for this, you know, influx of people. So yeah, you know, um, but that's the sticking point. I don't know if they told you why they hate me, but if there's another reason, enlighten me. Oh, oh no, they hate me as much as they hate you. 
I'm not an innocent party in, in their eyes either. So, look, I, I totally rate. I just see you as uh, you're a person that is, is putting in a lot of extremely hard work. And, uh, you know, I know that a lot of my work, I don't go out there uh, on my community saying, hey, everyone, I do so much hard work for the community, blah, 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 you know, um, worship me. But I uh, I know how much hard work I am putting into myself. And then I see some people with that lack of... Um, well, they're entitled uh, that they are very unappreciative or have no concept of understanding what and how far I do this. And people are trying to say, well, you should run it this way. And I'm like, okay, I thought about that scenario four or five years ago and I've come to this conclusion based on how it works. And sorry, it's a great light bulb moment for you, but I, I, you know, I went through all that four or five years ago. <laughs> so, um, you know, you're never going to have a room of people that totally agree with what you do or what you say, no matter how pure your intentions are. And at the start, when I first started all this, I used to get upset by people when they said bad comments about me or what I was trying to do or and all that. And it used to really upset me. And But now, obviously, it's water off a duck's back that you just go, all right, they've got some issues that it's a... Well, it's also happening in their world, right? So... If they come to my Facebook group, you know, we have, um, I don't know, seven or 8,000 people. So it's small compared to the donor sibling registry, but it's just for chatting and news and, and things like that. And those donor can see people, most of them have been kicked off the group because they're rude, they're mean. You know, and I don't allow that in my group. You can disagree. We can disagree and we can talk about it like grown up people. But we don't, you know, on their website, people send me screenshots all the time. I wish they wouldn't like ah, fuck Wendy Kramer. And it's like, yeah, none of that happens on my site because we're grown ups and we treat each other with respect. And that's why they're not in my Facebook group anymore, because they couldn't be kind. Just be kind. You know, it's not asking too much. Well, that, that's the thing. It's it's a toxic environment, and then it normalizes the toxicity in there for others to chime in. And you know, it's like one of those um, pack mentality sort of things. You know, you mm -hmm. you know, you come in part of the pack, and you start tearing the shit, um, tearing the lambs to shreds. And you know, but you, rather than feeling sorry for the lambs that you're tearing to shreds, you feel good about it because you're around other people telling you it's a good feeling to bring these people down. So it's, it's, you know, making their behavior acceptable, but they don't see that because they've got people around it. It's like pedophile rings. Um, you know, these guys are joining these pedophile rings because they, they feel comfort in knowing that there's other people around that are looking at these children, these innocent children, but it's okay because they're not the only, they don't, they don't see themselves as monsters anymore because they can see there's other people doing the same thing and they go, okay, I can relate to this. Now, I'm not trying to... Well, it's a toxic group mentality. And I think for these people, unfortunately, they get a lot of new people who just found out they're donor conceived and they think that this is the way they should feel, really angry and, uh, you know, want to like end donor conception and they're anti everything and anti Wendy Kramer and anti ev everything having to do with donor conception without being willing to have a conversation, you know, like I know without donor conception, I wouldn't have my child. So I really can't come out and say 
It should be, you know, end all donor conception. But I can come out and say, let's dialogue about it. And let's talk about maybe how the industry can be run more ethically and responsibly. They can still make money, but they can also be run ethically and responsibly. Let's talk about that. For me, I've done the the turn the back on it and pretend they're not there. But the reality is, it's not sending out the right you know the right message because I get a lot of prospective mothers that join these groups out of curiosity and and they too think that it's uh that's how they all feel and I feel it's an important conversation to have because. A lot of it is very hypocritical. Like I see it in there, they might post a, an article about um, me or you or another donor and it gets released on social media and they go, quickly, everyone, go on the comments section and make it look like we're, you know, we're bigger than we are, you know, like attack, attack, attack. And then you get them all, all the troops sent there and they, and then some person might come up with a, a fair valid point and then they just start attacking this person in the comment section and because there's like 10 of them to their one, they're like, yes, we've uh, we put them all in their place, you know, and like they're dictating how it's all going and, and all that. And, you know, for me it's like, you know, let's, let's sit down and talk about how, how, what can we do to make things better for the future? You know, like for me, I, I don't have any, um, like I'm past the stage of any hate or ill will against them because it's like, all right, you're this way for a reason. You've been influenced. Like a lot of these groups or this group, uh, I think one of the rules in one of these groups is, is you can't talk for one month. You've got to sit there and observe, you know? So naturally we're, <laughs> Because you gotta, you gotta, you can't, you know, you gotta learn their way of thinking. And if you come in and and exactly. and if you write something within that month, they ban you or or suspend you, and or they say, "We don't think like this in here. This is the way you have to think." Rather than these new people coming through and go, "Well, this is how I'm thinking." Like you know, work 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 me through it. Like why can't I think this way? And it's like, it's like. You know, to be a part of this, this is the way you have to be. And I, for me, I think that is bloody to to have that one month wait rule when someone is probably at the most curious stage when they join. I think, wow, these people, it's extremist, extremist. Well, I mean, like I told you, I do a lot of damage control. I get people who come, uh, prospective parents, parents of donor conceived children and adults, and donor conceived people who come from those sites who are like uh, really negatively impacted, like, oh my gosh. And they think that's how all donor conceived adults are. And that's a valid way of being. Now, again, I'm not saying that their feelings are not valid. If they're, they can feel however they want, but the problem comes, they cross that line where they make any other feelings invalid and they make everybody else wrong and they take maybe some anger or upset at their own situation and they turn it outward as vitriol to other people, many of whom who are trying to do the right thing in a very positive way. So um, yeah, it's just not the way I operate and it's not the way most people operate. Unfortunately, this small but very vocal group of donor-conceived people, 
they're a landing pad for a lot of people. And, and in my opinion, that's really unfortunate. There's a lot more supportive ways to jump into this community where you'll feel you will feel like you're being taken care of, not like you're swimming with sharks. And um, I mean, that's what I do every day is I try to create the soft landing pad for the prospective parents and the current parents and the donor conceived people and the sperm donors and the egg donors so that we, I try to make like a nurturing environment so that we can all understand each other and listen about each other's experiences and support one another. And it's just a very different experience than the angry pages that I'm not on, but I hear about and people send me screenshots of, and it's just appalling. It's just mean and vicious. Well, I'm not going away. And you've been around for a number of years now to suggest you're not going away. So it's one of those things where it's like, okay, you've been throwing our names in the mud for years. Um, what has it achieved? We're still here. We're still standing. We still do what we passionately do and believe in and, and love, um, you know, connect, making these connections and forging these families for people. Um, you know, it, it's time to reset and look at how can we constructively work together? Because, like, I find a lot of them was like, will you post this? Like, there's very, like, there's like a lot of demands in terms of like, there was no, there's no, there's no re rationality to it. There's no sitting down and going, okay, this is why I feel this way. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So you do work 70 hours a week. Okay. So, okay. So, okay. Yeah. Look, I only do a couple of hours looking into this a week, you know, like, it, you know, there's no rationality of looking at, okay, this person spends a lot more time doing this as opposed to me working and, living my own life and and then coming in when I'm bored for one or two hours a week and then deciding to have my two well, cents Well, or not. I think there's a difference between having an opinion and having an informed and educated opinion, right? So your opinions, are they based on facts, research, reality, experience, uh, you know, learning not just your own experience, but a community at large? Like there's a lot of things that... I think a lot of people come on here and they just take their own experience and they they kind of pull it out in into the whole community and say, you know, like, for example, if a, a parent had a child who wasn't curious, they would pull that out into the whole community and say, uh, well, most donor conceived people are not curious. Well, no, your child is not curious, but that's not the donor conceived community at large. Right. So you have to look at what is the over time experience? What does the research show? Um, what is the overwhelming anecdotal experience show? Um, and I think that that's where groups run into trouble too, is where people push their own very singular experience as the experience for a whole group. No, you're very, you're very well said. I, I think I, I totally on board and agree with that. And I say, they hate you for so it. They're gonna. But that's like the, the angry people, right? Because I'm angry because my parents didn't tell me when I was a child, and they lied to me, and they don't support me now, and they don't honor my curiosity or whatever their reasons are. Um, you know, anger is the appropriate way to be for a donor conceived person. No, anger is appropriate maybe for you, but 
you know, don't pull that out to the entire community to umbrella it under anger. It's just not, it's not accurate. Well, I've, I've pulled like some aside and had like phone conversations with that. And then once I've actually broke it down to them, okay, I'm like, okay, so I do this and you don't like this. So I do it this way. Um, and then I'm like, so what part can I do better? And then they don't have an answer for it. You know, they go, oh, well, I didn't know all that about you. I didn't know that's why you thought. I just wanted to hate you without looking into it. And you're like, exactly. Like, so, and then I remember very early, and I think very what the second podcast episode I ever did, I it was a prime example of this. I pulled her aside, said, well, let's do a podcast episode about it. And, um, but I told her all about me because she, because they were very hesitant because a lot of people were like, if you're in that community, you should not be talking to people that they don't approve of. You know, like it's like if you talk to them, then <laughs> so she got some um, uh, criticism from in that circle for actually reaching out and talking to me. And then when we spoke, she was at a level of going, okay, yeah, you're at, um, I actually see what you do now and, and, and it's actually good for don't can see people. But then when she tried to bring it back to that community, Oh, she got torched. It was like, and then I just thought, wow, these, this is some sort of people that uh, are like this. And I guess it is like religion, like, you know, extreme, extremist terrorism uh, based on a religion of uh, they've, they've, uh, they've uh, digested it in a way, you know, that it's normalized the radicalism. Um, rather than going back to other ways of people looking at a certain religion and 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 looking at the good traits of it, or or processing that in a in a respectful, peaceful well, it's, way, it's very simple. When you're in a cult mentality, you don't allow facts into the equation. You have your way of thinking, and facts don't matter. Yeah. So it's the same thing here. They have their perspective, which is the perspective that they kind of set for everyone in their group and facts don't matter. You can't introduce any facts. Like when they say to me, you know, you're greedy and you take people, you prey on donor conceived people and their money. And it's like, okay, where would I have got the $300,000 to rebuild the back end of my website? There's no reply because that's not in their conversation. It doesn't fit in their conversation. So the facts about it takes money to run an organization. And I ran it for with my own money for the first five years. What do you think about that? And it doesn't, none of those things, none of those facts matter because it doesn't fit in in the conversation that they that they're so limited to. So obviously you're a guest to my podcast today and obviously I do a podcast. So I tried to reach out to some of these figures that had those views and then, but they turn it down. And I think one of the main reasons they do turn it down is because when they, when I'll sit down and say to them, okay, so what upsets you? Okay. So I do this, 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 this. Okay. Oh, you know, so there's no comebacks to what you say that they want you to publicly record them and put you, put it out because they know 
deep down that they would sound stupid rather than for me, I'd go toe to toe with them because I've thought out everything. Uh, I've, I've listened to um, perspectives. So everything they're going to come out with, with their perspective, I've already thought of and, and, and felt that I've dealt with or, or got something in, in, in a pathway that, uh, you know, is taking an account of those considerations. And if they were to hit, a, hit a, it back, they would be like, oh, and then so everyone I've talking to off record that hasn't, you know, featured publicly and it's been exactly the same, except they walk away going, oh, you're not so bad after all, but it's not something that they can admit to, you know, their, you know, report back to the, the pack because uh, they'll be crucified at the stake. So exactly, exactly. Yeah, it's a challenge and it's very unfortunate you know, um, because that is the landing pad where a lot of parents uh, and donor can see people land. Um, but you can't, you know, do I, there's nothing, I focus on the things I have control over, right? So. Yeah. Oh, I think we've, we can move on from this conversation now, but I mean, I think yeah. it's very important. <laughs> I, I bet, well, I think it's very important because like, obviously for me, the people, the viewers that are listening to this show are, are parents to be mainly, you know? So they're parents that are going to come in and wonder, like they would have seen in the forums, Wendy Kramer, and they're going to see the guests on the titles, Wendy Kramer, and they're going to go, that's the woman that these people are talking about. But I think it's very important to paint that picture um, out there because, you know, often, you know, we're not part of these groups and we're not wanting to get, too deeply involved because it doesn't get us anywhere really ultimately it doesn't get up you know we don't we don't ever achieve anything from them they're they're, they're always going to linger linger around but for me it's like it, it it's the the new people that come in that are you know we want them to get it down the right pathways the right you know so if they want to for instance in this case today you know they're probably more better joining a donor sibling registry community and and getting accurate information from that than say join these other groups where they've been pushed to tell them how they're meant to feel or how you know there's one way or the highway sort of approach mentality totally agree so you said you did international media and i think one of the biggest ones that a lot of people could uh recall back to would be uh oprah like you have many experiences in your life uh you know for instance if you're a donor conceived person and you're a child and you've been told from day one that you're donor conceived and you have a donor and and sibling out there you that's something that you always remember you don't actually remember the point in time like i'm sure your child doesn't remember asking about his um dad being dead or something when he was two years old it's something that you remembered and stuck with you you had these key moments in your life experiences that you never forget and i'm guessing like a an opera winfrey experience is something that is uh you know pretty out there like especially when you're coming into this um world of of uh doing what you do and then that's sort of being recognized on uh, mainstream media across the world yeah i mean we actually did two operas one in 2003 and one in 2008 but we've been on everything in every newspaper and every everything which is great because the more people knew about us the more like i said before they knew that they had the right to be curious 
the right to search for and the right to connect and define those relationships with their donor relatives. So for us, back when media was media, it's very different now, but we were lucky to ride that wave so that, uh, you know, that's largely how we got to connect so many people is that once we got out there into the zeitgeist, we people knew that we existed and knew that not only did we connect people, but we conducted and published research and we were a support to our community. And they knew that the Donor Sibling Registry was a place to, to join our community where we could all learn from each other and learn from research and, uh, you know, maybe point this whole industry forward in a more positive way and hopefully deal with some of the issues and mistakes that everybody's made in the past, the reproductive medicine industry and us, the parents and, and the donors too. Like, you know, we, we kind of had to figure it all out about what is best for everybody. Most importantly, the donor can see people. And, uh, and I think we're pretty clear now, like how, what would be best for donor can see people going forward. Um, so us, the families are, have known this for a while. The problem is the industry is still more interested in making the money than really doing what's right for the families. Sometimes I feel we continue to fight fights that we know that there's no end in sight. You know, like we know, you know, we know what's right. We know what's wrong. We 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 hear the voices. We try to be a voice for the people, but at the same time, our voice will never be heard. Like you know, no matter how much we scream this is not right, this is not okay, it's not going to change in this current path. So is it something that we, you know, is there, is is it a fight worth fighting for? I mean, obviously it is, but I mean, I I consider myself a realist rather than uh, a person that, uh, you know, I, I pick my fights based on something that can actually achieve somewhere or get to some good. Is it something that is plugging a dead horse? Yes and no, right? Because the industry is only going to change when the people with the money start demanding things. So the more that we can educate the public, the people who will go into the clinic or the sperm bank with the money and say, I want a donor that I can know right from pregnancy or birth, then they're going to start, if they want that money, they're going to have to slowly change. Now, this has happened in the egg donation industry because we now have a few dozen egg clinics, egg agencies, and and lawyers who write the donor sibling registry right into their parent and donor contracts, allowing parents and donors to meet each other and connect on the donor sibling registry right from pregnancy or birth. That way it alleviates so many of the problems. So, but not one sperm bank will do it. But if enough prospective parents walked in with their money and said, egg clinics are doing this, I wanna find a sperm bank who will allow me to connect with my donor right from pregnancy or birth. Once one sperm bank does it, they'll all have to fall in behind. We just haven't had that one sperm bank who would be willing to let donors and parents connect right from the start. Yeah, well, for me, and what we're seeing in Australia, the problem is with Australia is they just, all the donors in Australia now join Sperm Donation Australia rather than join the clinics there because obviously in Australia you don't get paid for it. So if you can stamp out 
donors being paid in America, then you're obviously only getting guys for the right reasons. So if no guy was um, getting paid for it, then they're going to go, all right, well, the ones that do come through the door are the ones that want to be a part of these children's lives or be available to be reached out to or to that are open about it. And uh, so, for instance, in Australia, everyone is bypassing the clinics now and joining Sperm Donation in Australia and becoming a donor that way. But the only problem is, is, is the clinics doesn't matter because they say, oh, sorry, it's a two or three year late for um, year wait for an Australian donor. But we can import sperm from a Kairos bank in uh, America and bring it over here to you now. So, and we can charge you a markup fee of 30%. So they, they profit from the importation of this sperm as well. So the clinic's actually going, you know what, we've got no incentive to try and get Australian donors to come through our doors regardless, because we can still use the back door of America. Now, if America got rid of all that, and men had to donate that that way, then obviously, and laws are a bit different there in terms of men wanting to meet um, face-to-face because of legalities. But if we could get people like the right people through the right doors who are willing to meet each other, then that would then eliminate this this concept of them trying to control. Because I think I think the idea of trying to make you wait till 18 to meet the donor is was a lot of people were meeting their donor when their first child was, say, two, two years old, and then they said, hey, would you help me outside of the clinic, you know, in a more natural way of handing over fresh sperm? And, and a lot of them were doing that. So I think the clinics go, well, if we introduce these people too early, then they're not going to come through our doors and use that sperm that way. Well, I think with this whole industry, whenever you ask, why is it like that? Or how come they don't do that? Or why do they do this? All of those questions have the same answer. And it's one word and it's money. Everything that they do, especially now, because now all the sperm banks and the clinics, they're all owned by private equity corporations. So They were always all about money to begin with, but now it's really all about money because they're answering to money people. So every single decision they make about policy, money is first and foremost part of that equation. Donor can see people, what's right, what's ethical, what's responsible, what's medically uh, ethical, like all of those things are secondary to answering to the private equity corporation. And that is to make, sell as much product as you can. That is the goal. You know, we have, uh, you looked at my, is it ethical list? You know, none of those are hypothetical. They're all real. Is it ethical to sell the sperm of a donor who has already died? Like seriously, that's how, ethical this industry is where they can make money by continuing to sell that sperm of a guy who's dead and they'll do it because it's all about money let's talk fantasy here i mean it could be could be reality say i am uh a donor conceived person i'm uh, a multi-billionaire and i say hey wendy come to you and I go, look, I've seen what you've done with the donor sibling registry. I see what you set up. I see what your opinions are on the ethics of current clinics. 
I've got an unlimited amount of money right here for you because I strongly believe, you know, the way I got brought up and whatever, like, um, and relate to what you are all about. Here's the cash, set up a clinic. What are the changes that you lay out and do from the outset? And, you know, what what's the differential um, as opposed to what's currently going on out there? Yeah, so we did the research because so many people over the years have said, why don't you start a sperm bank, you know, and uh, yeah, so we checked it out and it's, it is millions of dollars, you know, not anything that we had, so we couldn't do it. But if I was to, I would call it the ethical sperm bank and I would allow people to meet right from pregnancy or birth because we know that that's best for the kids. We would... You know, that way you're empowering the parents and the donors to be in charge of their own, the depth and the breadth and the speed with which they create their relationships. So that would be number one. We would obviously then have accurate records on the children born. We would, you know, share and update the medical information or allow that process. Like there are so many things that we know are not working. Um, that I do believe there would be a way to have an ethical sperm bank, you know, not maybe different than what you're doing. You know, you put a roof over yours and a couple of other guys, you know, under that roof who are coming and going. Maybe that's the future, you know, just do it ethically. Um, but also consider the research, you know, like we talked before, what about how does it affect donor conceived people to not grow up with a father? You know, like you have to also stop, look at everything we've learned over the decades and then incorporate that into how would it look going forward more ethically and responsibly. And how do you bring the donors in through the doors then? Is it is a, a paid system for them for their time? Like, you know, is it does that go all out the window in an, in an ideal way of you know changing all that? You know, so they, you know, because a lot of donor can see people or or some they uh see it as like like uh, they've reached out to their donor and the donors shunted them and turned them away and said, Hey, um, I only did this for piss up money during college. And, you know, that's all, all you were all essentially all you were to me. So, you know, how do we change the money perception about them being made for a dollar figure rather than out, you know, cause we all get told, you know, you people create books and children's books that my donor was a kind person and out of love, they, you know, helped, other families and they helped me and then they grew up with this cinderella disney you know fairy tale story and then it and then it comes out when they actually meet the donor and he's like go away uh, my family doesn't know and i only did this for money like you know so how do we stop that proper education and counseling at the front door for donors this is what you're doing you're creating human beings who want to may want to know you and know about you and know their ancestry and their medical history and their close relatives like it's not just a piece of genetic material you are creating your biological children that will want to know who you are so you know, like educate them for instance in australia we have 
Um, they import the donor sperm from America under the proviso that the donors signed uh, uh, a form that says that they will make themselves available to the child. So everyone in Australia goes, oh, yeah, but my donors agreed to that. And But there's no, nothing, even if there was a form that they had to sign just to please the Australian government or the Australian, you know, um, clinics or whatever, even though they don't collect care, but it's just, you know, the to look like it's above board. There's no fines. There's nothing to hold them accountable um, for reneging on that piece of paper they signed. You know, so essentially oh, yeah. this. No, and that's been happening for decades. Uh, read my white paper called The Ambiguity of Open Gamete Donation. Story after story after story about people who had open donors or willing to be known donors and, uh, you know, like you're saying, either the sperm bank lies, they never reached out to them. The sperm bank lies and says we can't find them. Uh, the donors are allowed to change their minds. I mean, having an open donor in Australia or in the U.S. or anywhere, there's no guarantees. And there are a lot of, you know, donor conceived people need to grow up knowing too many are spend their childhoods uh, believing, oh, when I turn 18, I'm going to get to meet my biological father. And they should be, parents should be adequately preparing them for not necessarily. And what does that mean? And what are your options? And what's the best way forward? And maybe we can find him beforehand and reach out to him before the sperm bank does, because people have better luck reaching out themselves than allowing a sperm bank to reach out to a guy. So there are ways to do it to mitigate that heartache and damage. Um, but you have to have the correct information and not believe what the sperm banks are telling you about open donors or about limits or about medical updates or about anything. So is it a balance? I mean, obviously the, the, the underlining issue here, it's dollars, it's money, you know, so the, the money that they, so for instance, say I'm a donor, I just got diagnosed with diabetes or something like that. And I bring up the clinic and I say, Hey, just let you know, I've been diagnosed with this condition. Can you put me into that file and pass it on and update and let all the families know, which we know doesn't happen. Now, does it not happen because they don't have a full-time staff member that's there that they employ because, you know, they're paying this person to go out and distribute this information, you know, that as they collect it, rather than just say, oh, yes, no worries, we'll enter it in the phone by hang up and do nothing because obviously there's that resource they don't want to spend on a person to be employed to do that, um, which is they pocket, pocket that extra employment, you know, um, uh, and and pocket it for themselves, obviously, in the kitty of the, of the clinic. Well, also money liability. If they tell all the families that they know about, they don't even know who all the families are, so they can't possibly notify everybody about a medical condition because they don't know who the families are. They don't know what kids have been born. They have very limited uh, record keeping. They don't even remove vials from that donor in most cases. Say if they found out something a real genetic fault, uh, they still continue to sell that person if they have them on, on their list still, in most cases. Right, correct. Even when families are sometimes told, uh, uh, 
you know, the donor will be removed from the list and then he's not. I mean, basically you can't believe anything that they say that they're going to do or that they do. So that's why connecting with donor, with other families, that is your best way to get updated medical information at the very least. The sperm bank is not going to share medical information with you when they could be held liable. They're not going to share information with you when it's going to cost them money potentially in the future. Yeah. And like, I think, you know, I've heard stories, you know, like, and I'm sure that you've heard many horror stories as well. Like, for instance, like, it's not really a horror story, but it's sort of like behind the getting around the system or trying for a doctor. Like, so, for instance, this one recently was a lady was trying with her husband who's got male infertility. And um, she met a donor online and she went to that doctor and said to him off the record, you know, obviously just verbal, there's nothing recorded, there's no paper trail and said, hey, look, I found a donor online. Can the donor just do the donation? And my husband walks in and hands it over to receptionist and you freeze it. And he said, okay, yeah, I'll do that for you. But then she was dumb enough to... uh, email him his sperm analysis results to the doctor. So there was a paper trail of saying, so if the doctor got caught out, she'd be like, well, he did know because that's why I sent him those results. So the doctor read that and went, look, sorry, I can't, can no longer help you now after, after that. But there was willing to be a compromise in doing that. So you can see that there's all these, well, I guess it's on, on, on heartstring value. That's, a nice thing, but ethically or in a medical board, obviously that would remove that person's license or his license would be at stake and all that. So there's all these temptations and, and, and you know, people cut it, crossing those lines that those medical boundaries that they probably, probably shouldn't, you know, obviously running a large community, some, a lot of people come from good stories, bad stories or unexpected stories. And, can you name a few like maybe horror stories or things that you just can't, like out of your world that you know that you just come across and you just go wow I can't believe they did that or can't believe that happened or can't you know like is there moments where you go this is being you know exposed to this amount of many people conceived this way is there things that still blow your mind to this day that keep coming to your door Well I think they used to you know like I said before When many of us walk into this world, we assume it's the medical community, you know, that they're ethical and they have accurate records and they do medical updates and they share medical information. And we just assume that it's run the way that their websites portray them. And I think for a lot of us along the way, enough stories accumulated where we go, okay, wait a minute. This is not what I thought it was. And when I keep hearing the same story over and over again about donors who tried to report a medical issue and couldn't, or open donors who called the sperm bank year after year saying, here's my contact information. I'm really open to knowing my donor kids. And then you have an 18-year-old donor kid who calls in and says, I'm ready to know my donor. And they say he doesn't want to be known. And then they meet on the donor sibling registry and they're like, why would the sperm bank tell me you didn't want to 
meet me. And the guy, you know, the donor's blown away going, they obviously, you know, wanted to keep us from each other, but why? So when you hear these stories or covering up medical information or changing a donor's profile, deleting medical information, or um, not doing the genetic testing that they said that they are were doing. So when you hear, it's kind of like the same core stories, but they're over and over and over again. So you kind of just get used to hearing them, I guess. Like it's not unusual to hear about open donors who are not open or the sperm bank says they couldn't find them or that the donor changes mind and said no when none of that is true. So you hear all these stories over and over and over again that negatively impact donor conceived people either emotionally, mentally, medically, um, that I don't know, you, I, I just, I'm pretty used to it at this point because these are, they just happen over and over and over again. So, you know, hypothetically again, you create the ethical sperm bank, the, it's going to have a system in place that people ring up and, you know, they can be connected or they can update their information with the medical history and all that. So this all costs money, you know, obviously costs, it costs, um, you're going to, you're going to have extra overheads than say these clinics that are not, you know, cutting those corners or not putting those in, you know, that employing these people to control and maintain this and all that. So it goes back then to these people, the customers who are coming through the door and, you know, so say, let's just say around $10,000 um, or, um, but your one would have to cost, say, say $20,000 because it has all these extra um, things that will uh, be able to support them throughout, you know, over the years and the duration. Like, let's say it's not double, let's say it's a couple of thousand more, but like, as a as a customer that's coming through the door, especially when we spoke about the start, you know they've got this this eye on the prize of the baby, and then it's not till after the baby's born that they do that. Uh, is this why? Is this another reason that you know we, we're struggling to get that one clinic to become ethical because they're the they're fear of losing out, falling to the back of the pack, I guess. Because of that? Oh, definitely. They're not going to make as much money and they're not going to get as many donors. But the problem is, or I guess the situation is that donors are already can't be guaranteed anonymity. So I think the first thing that needs to happen is sperm banks need to stop selling every vial of sperm as anonymous. It's deceitful, I think. That would be number one, like acknowledge there is no anonymity. So you might as well connect the people right from day one because they can find each other from day two, you know, if they want to. Yeah. But is this because, and this is another reason because they tell the donor that there's going to be 10 families and then they, you know, the say we create this ethical sperm make or it goes to an ethical level where they go, okay, just let you know, so and so is born, here's the contact details, email, and blah, blah, blah. And then it gets to nine and you're like, okay, got one more coming. And then you've got 10, it's cut off. But in terms of being anonymous, they're like, hang on, all of a sudden you've got 30, you've got 40, you've got 50, you've got 100. You know what I mean? Like it's one of those ones like, too late now, but like, you know, we weren't, we weren't telling you along the way. So that's what the eventually got up to. Well, and that happens. I mean, most donors are promised a limit. My donor was promised no more than 10. 
you know, and I kept telling him, you can't promise limits until you have accurate records. They have no idea how many kids you have. And then, you know, when we hit 10 and then 11 and 12, I had to keep checking in with him, you know, how are you doing? I told you it'd be more than 10. And then when we hit 20, you know, I was like, how are you doing? Mm. I told you it'd be more than 20, you know, so, so I keep checking in. For the record, how, you know, th this is some of these donors that tell me this and um, I just roll my eyes because like, I go, okay, so how long were you donating at the clinic for? And they go, oh, two to three years. And what you think each, you're donating weekly, twice weekly there for two or three years, you think that's only going to create 10 families? Like, you know, and you're providing hundreds of donations. Like I did a, a donation for one lady and she got 20, um, 20 vials of sperm oh, there you go. just yeah. from one donation. And that's sitting well, that's there. That's the thing, donors are not properly educated that one donation doesn't equal one possible kid. The vials can be broken out to anywhere between four and 24 vials. So let's take my donor, for example, he donated for five years. And each time you make a contract, uh, it's for a year and you come in two to three times a week. So let's just take the maximum. He goes three times a week for five years each vial, each donation can be broken out into 24 sellable vials. That's a potential 19,000 vials of sperm. And he was promised no more than 10. Well, yeah, I mean, look, uh, I, I don't know. I feel if I was back in that time, um, you know, because for me, when I donated, I was like, I was like, oh, out of curiosity, straight away, oh, how many vials did I get? You know, like, so... I got told 20 and then all of a sudden I do the maps in my head straight away. I'm just like, well, that could potentially be, you know, you say even a quarter of that works, that's five from that one donation, you know, like, um, but that that was to one person. So that wasn't to for the clinic to distribute to how they wanted to. So I know that, you know, unless that one person wants 20 kids <laughs> individually, um, you know, is only going to equate to maybe one or two in, in their, in their circumstances and the rest will be, you know, either, either didn't work or, um, go for, I think I've, I said I'll click it to be for scientific, um, but I think they wanted theirs to be destroyed or something. So either way, it's whatever they want it to be. It can't be passed on to anyone else. And, um, but yeah, like for me, when these guys go, oh, I was donating this many times and I was only going to tell 10, I'm like, surely at one point you'd be like, how much sperm do they actually need for me to create 10? You know what I mean? Like for me, it's just like, was the money just so good that they just didn't care? They didn't think? Is it one of those things that they reflect on later in life where they meet the parents and go, oh, I didn't know because it's easier to say that and it sounds more accepting to the, uh, you know, the the parents that you are now meeting. You know, for me, it's just like, is it really? Did you really believe that? Like, I don't know. It's like, tell well, it's what they were told, you know, and it's also you're a college student. You see the advertisement that says, Come make $1,400 a month doing what you would do for free anyway. Mm. You're, you're 19 years old. You're 20 years old. And you go $1,400 a month. Heck yeah. You know, I, I will do that. That's book money, beer money, you know. Mm. Um, but they're not properly 
educated and counseled about the kids that they're about to create and that it's not going to be 10 and it could be 100 and they all could greatly desire to know you and be in your life and how are you going to deal with 100 kids what do you think is the ideal age of being a donor like for me i didn't consider becoming a donor until i had my own two children and knew how special you know what children meant to me and and what the gift was that i was giving out to people you know whereas a college student yes they're young they got um you know uh, it's, it's, it's considered that their sperm is going to be good quality. But then saying that, I think my sperm quality was less because I, I, I used to drink a lot, you know, in, in those party days, as opposed to where I'm more health conscious now, uh, you know, the, the food that I put in my body now is much more, uh, uh, good for sperm health than what I was eating back then as well. Like, uh, you know, so, uh, and obviously my life experiences and understanding what my children's needs are from having children as opposed to being a young child um a young adult that's just come out of childhood it's set themselves what do you feel about that you know do you feel that they should pass university first and then decide or should they you know where where what's the ideal candidate for a donor i think someone mature enough to make an educated decision about being a donor. So someone with the facts and not motivated by money and who understands the issues of donor conceived people. And yeah, just someone who has all the facts and has read research and really understands what they're walking into. Someone who takes the time to um, educate themselves about what they're going to do you know it's not just about a donation in uh, you know one day in your life this is about something that's going to affect your life for decades to come and are you prepared and how would you deal with the donor conceived people and what if there were a lot of them and you know how would you incorporate them and their needs into your life and your needs and maybe your wife's needs or maybe your kids needs you know there are sometimes when wives tell their husbands you're not going to know those donor kids you don't even have time for our kids and now you're going to invite those 37 kids into your life no and a lot of wives you know kind of put their foot down and say this this can't happen this is going to be a negative impact on our family and the kids that we're raising. So a lot of these things really need to be thought out. These donors are set up around clinics that are around universities and sometimes there's like four clinics on each corner of, of a university. How many clinics is each donor using? Is you know Are they using multiple? Sometimes, yeah. In our research... Anywhere between 22 and 28% of sperm donors donated to more than one place. So a lot of times it's where they get their undergraduate degree, then wherever they go to get their master's, what's in that city. And sometimes then they go to work and where am I working? You know, so yeah, I mean, it's not, it's, you know, a quarter around a quarter of sperm donors donate to more than one place. So that even means, you know, the potential of more and more kids. No record keeping, there's no regulation, and nobody's keeping track. So say if you're an Australian prospective parent and you're, you've gone to the clinic and you're told you get sold the American dream of American sperm over there, 
and you told them you, you told one that the clinic's only going to give 10 families two from that point there based on your statistics then from that point there there's a 25% chance or one in four chance that they could be donating at multiple clinics with more more from those clinics as well so even if the clinic was truthful and told you that it was a 10 that your donor could still be because of the money incentive incentivization could still be uh you know donating at multiple clinics out there so there's no there's no guarantee if you currently pick an american donor doesn't matter what country you're in uh, and importing that sperm from there. Would that be correct? That is correct. And, I, and I've and i talked to Australian families who believe that because of the Australian law, you know, where they live, that no, 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 we only import donors who have less than 10 kids and who are willing to be known. And then we hear also stories of Australian families who believed that until they connected with the other 50 families who use that donor. So yeah, they want to believe it because that's what they're told. But um, if you're importing US sperm, there is no way to know if that donor is actually going to meet your kids when they're 18. And that's because of the donor himself and because of the sperm bank. And there's no way to know that there's a limit on the number of kids that that donor can create because nobody has accurate records because there's no mandatory reporting of birth. So as long as birth reporting is voluntary, you're never going to have accurate record keeping. You're never going to know how many people, how many kids are born for any one donor. When I was looking at that Jonathan Meijer case, it was a civil case where um, he's got told that he can't talk to anyone about the prospect. If someone approaches him about donating, he can't talk to him. Otherwise, he'd be facing a $25,000 fine for each uh, child that's created. And he was recently on uh, Danish media and he went on an interview there. He was saying that his sperm at the clinics can just get distributed out and hundreds get, get made that way. But if he chooses to do it that way, he's going to get get a fine for 25000 but yet the clinics can keep doing this and hand up and they're not responsible. And he's, and he's and he, what he's saying is it's unfair because, because he's just the sole guy without money and backing and all that sort of stuff. That, well, uh, I mean, the truth is none of them should be doing that, not the sperm banks and not him or any other private donor to create hundreds of kids from one person is just not fair for the kids and for medical reasons. It's just not right. My point of the thing was, was like they're able to pick him up and stop him on an individual basis. But then on the other side of the coin, it's just like, all right, we've put this, this we've implemented that, but they're still not willing to go after the clinics. Well, right, because you can't go after the U.S. clinics. You know, there's no regulatory body monitoring them, so they can basically do whatever they want to do. I mean, yeah, of course, uh, that. But I mean, like, say, for instance, Australia or any other um, country that imports sperm from them, you know, that would, you know, if there was market was big enough um, overseas for them as well, not within their own local market, then it could put pressure on them to say, all right, we need to get more aligned because right now it seems like they're telling the Australian government this is, you know, we've got it all sorted, it's all in the best interest and, you know, all that. 
and it's all well and good telling them that, but there's no actual implementation or there's no repercussions of massive fines for succeeding or, you know, breaking those little handshake agreements that they essentially are. Yeah, exactly. And and when pressed on like specifically the number of kids per donor, the only thing they can say is, well, all we can go on is reported births, you know. And so that's all they can go. That's their response to, you know, you promised 10 kids. Why are there 50? Well, all we can go on are reported births. Meanwhile, like my sperm bank, California Cryobank, I reported the birth and they had no record of it. So, you know, it's like, it's a no-win situation. Well, yeah, it's just wiping their hands clean of everything that you, in any case that you put forward to them, isn't it? It's just like, we caught us out there, but oh, well, what are you going to do, do about it? Because there's nothing holding us to it, to that, you know? Like, you know, if you had proof and there was millions of dollar fine for not doing it and you said, hey, here's the email I sent, this is the attachment, this is the follow-up I did, so just in case you did, was missed in the system, here's all that. You know, if there was massive fines attached to that, then I'm sure they'd be wanting to, you know, get get it into the, getting that information in there based on the risk of being at those those fines. Whereas now you go, I did this, I've shown you this, and they're like, oh well, what what are you going to do about it? Exactly, exactly. It's like, um, yeah, nobody's watching. Nobody is, there's no rules that they have to adhere to. And that's the problem. Without regulation or oversight, they can basically do whatever they want and say whatever they want on their website and their marketing materials because they promise up and down that they do yearly medical updates, that they share medical information, that they lim limit the number of kids. Um, you know, they make all these promises and it doesn't matter. They can say whatever they want, you know, in their marketing materials. The most captivating thing for me about your community that you have is obviously the studies, the scientific studies, the, the information you're able to be able to extract, which is, you know, not readily available. There's not a, a big enough community that has a big enough resource to grab you know and dissect all that from over the years you know obviously i think maybe scientists or psychology studies and people who come in and they, they would approach you and ask you to uh you know to assist in participating in or reaching out or setting up um uh you know uh, surveys and, and all that sort of stuff so could you go over some interesting ones that have uh, that have happened or ones that may be in the future or ones that you think in the future would be you know you'd like to explore that haven't really been done much research into so far like yeah give us a list of all all that yeah so in the first few years of running the donor sibling registry we would report to the industry the ways and the experiences of everyone in the donor family, the donors, the parents, donor-conceived people. And they would poo-poo everything that we said, saying, well, we don't take anything the donor sibling registry says seriously because it's all anecdotal. Show us the research. And so starting, I think, in 2005, Cambridge University in the UK 
came to us and said, we, we want to do research with you guys. So not only did we get a university, we got like the most prestigious university in the world, basically, to partner with on many research studies. And since then, we've partnered with many other universities around the world. But then we started publishing the research and they still, they don't read it. They don't acknowledge it, you know? So basically they don't want to hear the anecdotal and they don't want to read the research. But in spite of it, we've continued over the years to conduct the surveys and to publish research. So we've done it on uh, donor-conceived people. We've done it on... Um, parents, sperm donor recipients. We had one large study of 1,700 sperm recipients. We've done egg donor parents, so egg donor recipients and, and their partners. Um, we've done uh, sperm donors and egg donors, several studies and several papers. And we've even done, oh, we did a study on the non-biological parents and then we did a study on the donor grandparents, donors' parents. What do they think? Because we think that's important. Too many donor grandparents say, you know, I don't care if this child was conceived in the backseat of a car, in a test tube, in a marriage, whatever. It is my grandchild, you know? And we were hearing that enough that we said, yeah, let's uh, let's survey the donor grandparents because I think donors need to think about that too. If they're creating grandchildren of their parents that they'll never get to know, how is that going to affect their parents? You know, many of these grandparents feel very strongly about wanting to know their grandchildren, their biological grandchildren. So we basically surveyed and published in peer-reviewed academic journals Everybody in the donor family, you know, all the stakeholders, all the people that that, you know, their lives are affected by gamete donation. I came across a podcast I listened to, I think, last year or the year before, and it was about egg donors, ones who donate considerably amount of times, gone through the process of the taking the uh, medication uh, that stimulates the trigger growth of all these follicles, but it also seems to trigger the growth of potential cancers or trigger cancers and all that. And like, uh, so everyone in this medical field, they created this technology of, of being able to do this. And now recently, well, this podcast was produced by Sony and the they looked into it and they found that now um all these people who are in these forums who donated eggs uh in their 20s who are now in their early 40s or 40s a lot of them are coming down with like liver cancer or a lot of them are dying extremely young and then when they look into it further there's never been a study done for these people of what the effects are from egg donation, say five years down the track or 10 years down the track or 20 years down the track. You know, there's no, there's no uh, evidence listed because no one's ever bothered to look at the aftermath of it all. And it's only now I think they're looking into doing the first or the first studies underway based on what these people are bringing up in forums. Otherwise it probably would have still kept going on right now. Now, 
So yeah, we've studied them. I mean, we've published research about no med, no known medical risk. What they tell donors isn't the same as no medical risk. And we've raised in several of our published papers um, the fact that, like you say, secondary infertility, cancer, there are certain things that warrant further research, longitudinal studies of the egg donors and how the process affects them. So yeah, we've done the studies and what we found is that further studies are needed, more longitudinal, uh, you know, medical history studies of anyone who's gone through the egg, egg donation um, process. So, you know, there's, this is just a, an example of, of uh, this medical world of, you know, we've gone about, you know, we get, we get these men to extract sperm, the sperm comes out into the world. It's uh, facing oxygen, light and all this stuff that, you know, would normally never see. Then that throw on top of that, then there's this, uh, this freezing stage that, uh freezes the sperm at these uh, really ultra low temperatures. And then once they defrost it, only 50% of them come back alive. So obviously they've taken, some of them have taken a hit and the ones that obviously do come back alive have, have probably been affected a little bit because obviously other ones are dying from it, but they've survived the four process. Uh, a lot of motilities dropped in um, sperm once unfrozen compared to what else were around before they were frozen. So there's, you know, we, we, what we see there is some deterioration for, based on what we can see from the forefront. Now, there seems to be a lot of donor conceived people talking about having autoimmune diseases or, you know, the um, levels of autism that are higher than, say, the, you know, people who are conceived naturally. Is, is this another thing, like freezing sperm as as opposed to medication for egg donors is this something that is needs more studies into um you know is it has the clinic got it right in this way of of doing things um you know obviously for some people you don't have much choice you require a donor that requires these ways but is it is it a way that still needs more exploring? Like, are these children going to lead, like, you know, we don't have a, a life expectancy rate. Have we done um, a survey that compares donor conceived people in, in your community who are 30 or 40 and, and done underlining um, their, what the health issues they're now experiencing in life now at the age of 40? As Because, like, the majority of children are all born healthy anyway. It's not until we get to 40, 50, 60 that we can really you know, fall off, you know, deteriorate compared to, uh, you know, that's when most health problems start to arise, you know, like as, as I say, when people are donors in their early 20s, it's like, well, what's their medical history? They don't know because they haven't, you know, they're still healthy up to that point. Has there been studies come to you from these um, universities that are trying to compare health aspects of this compared to people who are born conceived outside of clinics? No, because we haven't seen that. We haven't seen any health issues that are predominantly or more visible in donor children than the rest of the population, except maybe, and you mentioned this autism, but my, here's my theory. That's not because the sperm deteriorated from being cryopreserved. My theory is that I think we see more people on the donor sibling registry who have children 
on the autism spectrum, specifically Asperger's, not because of the sperm quality, because of the donors that they're recruiting. So, and this is my theory, it's not scientific, but I think it's valid. We might see more kids with autism or on the autism spectrum in the donor community because it takes a certain kind of a man to donate sperm to know that he's going to create X amount of kids out in the world that he'll never know. So there has there's a disconnect somewhere in there. And I know this because just because of what I do, I talk to a lot of people and it often comes up, oh, would you ever be a sperm donor? And most of the people I talk to say, no, I couldn't have children out in the world that I couldn't know who they were or if they were okay or how many there were. So there's some kind of a disconnect in sperm donors. And maybe that is something on the autism spectrum. Maybe it's Asperger's that there is that allows for that disconnect to, for guys to be able to just donate and donate and donate and have no idea how many or who of their children are out in the world. I think that's a really valid point because for me, as I told you and tell everyone on multiple occasions that uh, I wouldn't be able to donate at a clinic and keep donating and, and not know who that child's going to and to have that peace of mind or security that I'm satisfied and, and, and at peace with that. You know, for me. So, would... so what is the disconnect that some men can do that? And is that what leads to more kids, donor kids being on the autism spectrum? In addition, most donors are recruited from universities. So they're smarter. You know, the smarter you are, the more likely you are uh, to have other mental health issues like Asperger's. So based on what you know and, and the background that you're from, say let's put into my community sense where a lot of people are using online donors and that and you're so you say say wendy kramer's back back in time she's in the in the in 2023 the laws protect you from using a known donor picking a donor you're not going to you know child custody or child support you're not going to face any of that um you can go out and get your donor to get genetically tested and and get all the health stuff that you want to do and have that all in place and you're looking for a known donor um, and you're coming across men who are saying, all right, look, I'm willing to be a part of the child's life. They ask questions. I'm happy to meet up with you. I'm happy for you, your child to meet my parents or, or what, it, you know, any of that sort of stuff, as opposed to coming across a guy that says, look, you have the child. I don't want to know anything about him. I, you know, you, I, I'm just going to help people. I don't have, uh, you know, I don't care who I help. I, I don't care what type of person they are, you know, to you, to, to you now, from what you know, does that ring alarm bells? The guys that are sort of ones that are totally dis would be totally disconnected to the ones that are sort of like going, okay, well, I will be available if they reach out. Like, is, is that sort of. It's kind of hard for me because that wasn't my situation. So you're saying, imagine if you were single and this was the only, like my my story so different at the very beginning, right? Like mm. the only reason I went with a donor and we did, like, I was thinking, do we know anyone, you know, that we could use? But given the fact that I was married, I don't think that would have gone over well because mm. I was married. 
It, yeah, it doesn't. I mean, my community's majority same-sex couples and um, single mothers by choice. And a lot of these heterosexual partners still prefer to use a clinic because the guy doesn't want to see the man that, you know, they, exactly. they don't want to paint that vision or they don't want that partner to have that connection to reach out to the other guy. Um, yep. it, there's a lot of insecurity there. Um, yep. So, yeah, I mean, it is, I mean, like obviously I try and always, you know, I try and think, you know, what if I was Wendy Kramer back then or what if I was so-and-so back then or what if I was a donor back then? So I always try and um, I think part of um, running these communities is you come across all these walks of lives and I always try and put the shoe on the other foot mentality of like, okay, what was it like to walk in your shoes or what? how would you do things different now if you were in a different, um, you know, uh, time frame or um, being exposed to this now? And um, so from so from basically what you're saying is um, a lot of these men, if you if you to me, what I'm getting from this um, and is I would want to as a recipient parent to be, I would definitely want to be able to have a video conversation, what we have at the very least or sit down and have a chat to see what my mannerisms are or how I can dart to myself or my you know, if I'm socially awkward or, um, you know, if I got anything that, you know, could be, um, you know, that could lead to Asperger's or autism, because basically what you're saying is, is that the type of people that are able to disconnect at clinics seem to be producing more children on that scale of Asperger's. And there's nothing wrong with people who've got Asperger's or autism, but as a parent, they are harder to raise. Um, so people say, you know, there's a lot of more time um, and effort and uh, and that around them. A lot of them grow up to be functional, um, you know, students and, and, and human beings as adults, but it's sort of the raising stage, which can be the more challenging. So- well, it's a dual-edged sword, right? Like I always tell people, when you're choosing a donor, don't have high intelligence be at the top of your list because the smarter the guy, if you go for the astrophysicist, there's going to be other issues along with that high intelligence because it's it's a dual-edged sword, right? So my if I was telling people to choose a donor, the number one quality that I would tell them to look for would be uh, kindness, someone who's really kind. And I think that would be that would be not my number one attribute that I would be looking for in a donor. Yeah, look, it's it's funny that you say that because what I've noticed is is with the children that I've helped create, the parents. Uh, often give the feedback to me saying, you know, the, the ladies at daycare say you're, the, the, our, ch- our child is uh, very um, kind and loves animals. And when, the, you know, we bring the animal farms in there, they're, you know, they're really, you know, all the really caring of other children or a lot of them play particularly interest in like um, the, the younger babies in the class or like in other classes. And they have, you know, all that sort of caring aspects and traits that seem to be passed on to them. And I just think, because like then that makes me like I never really thought about that before. But then I take a step back and go, oh, I guess I made this community because I really care about society and doing things right and allowing people to have families that I was able to do. The experience I had as being a father and the joy it brought to me and to pass that on to people. And I think, well, I guess that's where my caring comes from as well. 
and to see that passed on to into the children to know that these you know having more caring human beings out there you know for me that like as a a trait that i get the feedback from and i just go wow oh that was pretty cool like that's amazing so yeah you're right absolutely no that would be you know i know a lot of parents really want to go for physical or you know high intelligence but i don't know i just think if you go for the really high IQ guys, you're also then opening yourself up to other things, you know, and I think, I don't know, I think kindness is much more important. I mean, the donor civil registry now has been around, you know, for so long. And, you know, there's technology that comes in and it's like some people would have thought, you know, with uh, DNA testing come in that, you know, you know, you could have been wiped off the map. It's like uh, video shops, you know, blockbusters and all that, um, or like Nokia phones that were the, were the in thing at the start where now it's, you know, Apple and Samsung and they're not the big fish anymore. But um, you you remain the big fish uh, in terms of... Well, like- but see, when we, we saw DNA testing coming before anyone did because of my son, Ryan, we thought the same thing, you know, maybe we become not needed anymore. Uh, And that's okay. You know, maybe that's just what's going to happen a a natural evolution, you know, of the system. (laughs) But actually, and you can go on our website, we have a growth chart, you can see, we're growing still more than we were even at the beginning, because Now, in addition to sending people to DNA testing, a lot of people come to us from DNA testing. And the more that we educate the public, the more that families, uh, you know, mothers, prospective parents, women with uh, men and women with babies, children, they understand the importance of connecting. And a lot of people are not comfortable swabbing their child's DNA. You know, they don't have to when there's a place where they can meet uh, you know, the other families that use the same donor on the donor sibling registry and it's all mutual consent. So they know that everyone they're connecting with desires some level of contact as opposed to DNA where you really, you don't know what you're going to get and you might surprise people or reach people that don't want to be contacted. So I think it's for those reasons that we, our growth has been, um, has never slowed down. It's amazing to see what you've created and the trajectory it continues to go out. Do you, I, I think when I first started my own community, it was like I never fathomed to understand the the amount of demand or the fact that I turned it to um, donors preferred now in Australia to come through my doors than through the clinic doors. And, you know, to have that um influenced by speaking out and you know talking about it and normalizing that and uh you know giving people these resources that they never had or you know aspects or um putting them into a direction that they would never be able to consider on their own thoughts without having someone to educate them through it um where do you see the donor sibling registry going to now? I mean, like it's, you know, you've been around, you've got the trajectory. What, what's, what is there things that you still want to achieve? Is there things that you still want to do? Is there studies that you want to get done? Like, is that what, what where do you see the next 10 years going? And, uh, you know, have you ever thought, you know, cause 
you look back at your life and you go, there's things that I achieved or things I wanted to achieve or things I wanted to do in life. Is there still things that you need to get done before you're like that, you know, I'm content. I done a I, I contribute to this this industry or around this industry and I've given everything I've had to give and this is where it's at and you know, that's it. So how you know, what's that for you now? Well, I think when I look at the donor sibling registry over the last 23 years and and my work, I think there are a lot of things to be really proud of. You know, the fact that we've connected 24, 25,000 people, that's amazing. The fact that we've conducted and published research that we support all of our 86,000 people, the fact that we have helped to educate the public and everyone in the donor family and the reproductive medicine and um, the mental health community, you know, so I can see so many places where we've been really successful. Um, the one area where I feel not successful at all is changing the industry. And I feel really like a failure in that area. Like we've done everything else and yet I haven't helped to budge this industry at all into being more ethical and responsible. And I feel like that's always work to be done eventually to change it so that future donor conceived people and their parents and donors are better taken care of because the industry is run differently. So I feel like while I can acknowledge my successes and that's great and everything because we've affected many people's lives, but at the same time, I can also see one very big failure in changing the industry. Um, so that, you know, that doesn't feel good to me because I've worked really, really hard and to not see the effects of that hard work in changing the actual reproductive medicine industry, um, you know, doesn't sit very well with me. But I mean, that takes a war chest, doesn't it? You know, as we said, set up the ethical sperm bank would take a billion dollar investor to come in and go, hey, this is it. Do it how it needs to be done. You know, we don't find a lot of these people and, uh, you know, someone needs to be able to, you know, you've got the time, you contribute the time, you show the hard work that you've put in, you know, you've been doing it for so many years now, a couple of decades plus at least, um, you know, investment wise to, to for someone to come in and say, all right, we want to do it ethically, this is the person to do it. It's still hard to come across these people, but you, you know, you've done everything you can, but you're not really going to get at the end of the day, you're not going to get there unless you have the money to combat these people. that have got the money that are dictating the terms of it. And, you know, at the end of the day, money talks and um, bullshit walks, but um, you know, you need yeah, to. And that's, you know, fundraising is I've been a failure at fundraising. You know, we've done two full rounds where I've hired um, professional fundraisers to look for grant money and donor money and uh, have not been successful there either. So, 
yeah, I've not been successful with raising enough money so that we can do what needs to be done. Is there any famous billionaire tycoons out there that have been donor conceived that yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But they don't want to be the poster children for donor conception and they're private about it. Yeah. yeah that's the problem, isn't it? It's a shame. It's such a shame. It's so many, uh, so many walls and obstacles in front of us that we need to, we're trying to get around. We're trying to find that way. And, you know, there's, it's like that carrot's always dangling, but it's never at reach. And it's just like it. Well, that's, yeah. But you get to a point like, you know, that's why I started charging the yearly fee because I thought, okay, at the minimum, I need to keep this engine going so that we can keep educating, supporting and connecting donor families. So if I continue to get no outside funding, at least the membership fees will pay for us to keep chugging along and taking care of our people and maintaining, you know, the engine that is the donor sibling registry. So at least I've done the minimum by keeping enough money to keep us growing, you know, to meet the needs of our community and doing a lot of the things that we feel are important, you know, with educating and supporting our community. I think it's amazing. Um, professors put in a lot of hard work like myself in my own community, so I know how much hard work it deeply involves. Uh, I, I take my hat off um, to you because it's uh, it's definitely one of those things that it's an all-in journey you know you can't if you're going to do it right you can't you know you've got to be fully committed to it you know and once you're in that that way that's your life you know this is your legacy now like you will be remembered for everything you've done everything you tried to do and everything that you may have not achieved as well like you know these things are all on public display for for judgment and you're going to have a lot of people that appreciate you you know you're always going to have people that will not like you no matter what goodness you do, but you've, you know, and that, and for a lot of people that stops a lot of people from doing that because they're always wondering about backlash and bravery. So you've got to have a big thick skin and a backbone to go and do this. So I, I think it's amazing what you've done. So we'll wrap it up now, but for, you know, for people who considering joining the donor sibling registry, let them know what you provide and let them know what they can learn or educate about because a lot of these people listen to this podcast are ch people with children to be rather than not already children now. So can they learn anything from joining the community early? Is there people that have used online donors before that weren't forthcoming or, you know, had to hide behind privacy laws because or didn't want to connect because, you know, laws are out there. So, you know, does that help them as well? Yeah, we do have some known donors on the donor sibling registry that have put up postings and have made that a way for all of the families to connect. Um, it's not the norm, but, you know, they're there. Um, I would tell prospective parents to or anybody use our website. There's days and days of reading educational materials, published research, anecdotal stories, experiences, testimonials, media stories. We did a six-part MTV docu-series, uh, which is, I think, really educational and lets people understand the dynamics of all different kind of donor families and donor-conceived people connecting. Um, we also did a documentary that was Emmy-nominated called Sperm Donor. I would say watch that. So 
I have, you know, books and articles, my psychology today, uh, monthly contribution. Those are articles that I think I would send people to first um, because there's a lot of information broken out into bite-sized pieces, you know, starting out, uh, I think it was last two years ago, February, when I started, it was, you know, the history of donor conception. And then there's one specifically for prospective parents and, uh, you know, one about sperm donors and different issues. So I think those psychology today articles are a good, um, a good way to introduce yourself to the world of donor conception and the world you're stepping into and the kids you're, um, you're about to create. Cause I think the more, you know, the better it will be for you and, uh, definitely for your donor conceived child. Well, on the episode notes, I'll uh, link the webpage. I mean, it's pretty straightforward, donorassemblyregistry.com. But, you know, there's relevant links out there. And, look, I appreciate um, you coming on the show today. And we've spoken at an extensive length. It's one of those monster um, podcasts that I sort of get into. But, like, you know, you, you can do lots of podcasts and a lot of episodes, but they just glance at the surface and they smooth over a lot of things. And it's just the feel-good parts and all that. But it's there's, there's so many layers to this. And... For my podcast, it's like, this is your life. Tell the story as it is. It's not all roses and there's tough times through that. But I mean, I what I will say is, you know, our dialogue between between us was, yeah, you you were very responsive in your times and replying and talking. Sometimes I hadn't even hit the reply and it was already a response there. <laughs> so like, I mean, the, 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 you know, the time that you dedicate and it's like, we got the times mixed up tonight as well. So you've worked in a, an extra long day and, when you probably thought you were coming on a podcast tonight, you probably thought it'd be 45 minutes and that, that'd be it. And <laughs> That's fine. Yeah, no, I appreciate that you reached out to me and that this will, you know, potentially help some people clarify issues and answer questions and, you know, help them forward. I think uh, overall it paints, a, it paints a story of a person that's very passionate, very, um, very strong and standing up for what's right and for what's wrong. I think those are the those are the key indicators that people would probably walk away from this today. And you know, I love coming across um, people with these like-minded identities that are really strong and passionate in what they truly believe in and what they feel is right. You know, because um, people like you, you're an inspiration for people that need need that direction, that need that guidance, or need that resources that would not that would not be there unless you spent the time and doing that. You know, that's twenty three years plus work put into this it's not like an overnight thing you know that it's a it's a time dedication that not many people can say that they've ever contributed to society in any way shape or form so the world needs more people like you out there and i really appreciate hearing your story today and uh, i think we will touch on changing some people's perceptions and ideologies and help importantly guide other people down a more better path for their their children and children to be so thank you agreed thank you so much for having me don't try to explain your mind i know what's happening here better go and get your own